from america there's no challenges remaining ben rothenberg already grimacing from the cringe my friend Courtney went hi Courtney. how are you just full body i went full body on that one i wasn't anticipating it i wasn't and just that was awkward and terrible but it's not awkward nor terrible to see you again ben welcome home thank you from your from your long long trip both of us completely jacked up sleep schedules which mm-hmm. works out really well because we're still on the same time zone, <laughs> effectively, which is Aussie time. So it works out. Yeah, I did kind of weirdly go all the way right back around the world to get back on Aussie time somehow. So I need to f- correct that. But yes, very nice to see you here. Happy to be talking about this Australian Open. We were planning on doing a podcast the night of the men's final. Uh, but then that went like, if you may have seen like five and a half hours, as they tend to do down there. Flights, lots of flights. Anyway, now we're here. We're doing the thing and hopefully some distance lends some different perspective than the, than the immediate takes you got from everybody. But obviously these were much talked about finishes on both men's and women's sides of the Australian Open, two very popular, both in their own way, kind of storybook finishes in the champions we got with Ashley, Jacinta Barty and Rafael Nadal Pereira winning their titles in Melbourne. Going by their Christian names, my goodness, you, going full. You know, you know, it's sort of an honor, like they're getting knighted by the show today or something. <laughs> Courtney, let's start with uh, the women and Ash Barty. That final took place first. Ash Barty marched through the draw in her own marchy way. Not she's not much of a marcher, but you know, she did her, her bar- whatever her normal Barty gait is through the draw. Unim- largely unimpeded, uh, gets the final, plays Danielle Collins. It's, it's her toughest match of the tournament, I think. Definitely, yeah. Definitely, by the scoreboard and by a bunch of different met- metrics. And she wins it. She gets down an early break point in mid-first mid set. Uh, it's a great sort of inside-in forehand winner to save it. And then uh, takes the first set 6-3, gets down 5-1 in the second set, and then really quickly comes back. That's the thing that gets me with this match. Like The 5-1 to 5-all was fast. It was very fast. And she made that move fast, and then she wins in a tie-break screams in delight, hollers even, shouts, all sorts of unbardyish things. Yeah, you've obviously talked about this a lot in, in the intervening four days, but what, what looking back now, what stands out to you most about Barty's run and how she and how she finished it? What stands out to me remains just how processional it was and how really there was never a hiccup. And people can point to the five one, but that was Danielle. It wasn't it wasn't really Ash. It, you know, there was a lot of conversation going into the final of like, well, Barty should win X's and O's and by form and all this sort of stuff, but how will she handle the moment? How, you know, is she gonna choke? We've seen her choke before, like, you mm-hmm. know, like in, in Australia, that sort of stuff. And it just didn't happen. In seven matches, there were opportunities for it to happen. I mean, as dominant as the scorelines were and as lopsided as they were, they were that way because she was coming through the tight moments in those matches. She was, you know, there was what, four down four break points, love 40 against Georgie, and she saved them all. And, and continued her her six, what would eventually become a 63-game uh, uh, hold streak uh, mm-hmm. that she extended in that one. You know, Anisimova, that was a tight match. You know, it was 4-3 and three or 3-4, three and four, but it was tighter than one would think. Even the 2-0 and o against Pagula, there were moments. Madison started playing better in the second set. There were little moments where, you know, we've seen Barty struggle in that second set and drop it 
and just really go completely, you know, away and pull it back. I mean, we saw it at the Wimbledon final, you know, less than a year ago. And yeah, didn't happen here. And um, even in that final down 1-5, um, I remember seeing, I remember watching that final and um, and I'm glad that you mentioned the inside in forehand down break point at two all in the first set because so not enough people are talking about that point. That point didn't even make the highlights, like the AO official highlights. It's not in their automated highlights. It drives me crazy. It's not AO's fault. I know the system that's in place. It's not a foolproof system when you do automated highlights, but yeah. two all break point saved by a winner. I don't understand, but it was a really, really big point. And again, it's one of those that Barty goes on to win that first set 6-3, but, it, you know, she saved that break point and broke Daniel Collins in the next game. That's how it ended up being 6-3. If that point flips, who knows how that match turns out or how that first set looks. We don't know. But that being said, down 1-5, Daniel Collins is, is hooting and hollering, giving the shouts, you know, getting <laughs> real fired up. And the whole time, though, that I was watching that match, I never really thought Barty was nervous. I saw a lot of other people disagree with that and say, oh, she's tight and this, this and that. But even in the, what was it, first set or second set where she shanked a ball and Josh Eagle caught it courtside with, like, he was sitting with Danielle, uh, with uh, Renee Stubbs and Barbara Shed Eagle, his wife. And Ash looked over and like giggled and smiled. Like there was a point where Danielle like fist bumped, Barty laughed. She was actually way more relaxed than I think people give her credit for and very present. And being present is my point with respect to the 1-5 deficit in the second set is that she was down 1-5 and she quickly made the tactical adjustments that were necessary to bring that match back on her terms. She hit the forehand bigger. She started looking for forehands that weren't there. As she said, she started hitting the two-hander more than the slice because Danielle was handling the slice a lot better. So she was very present, like yeah. given everything that was going on, she was just on it. And that's what my takeaway was, because when she was on it for seven straight matches, no one came close. And there were and she went through a lot of very good players to do it. I want to compare her to another WTA great um, and Andy Murray, who who, <laughs> who reminds a couple of things about and there are a couple of interesting parallels between Barty's sort of moment and a couple Murray moments is that you remember, obviously everyone remembers, you know, <laughs> the day we won Wimbledon. Uh, 2013. I still have anxiety that I'm still like, like Murray was up <laughs> two sets and a break at six five serve the match. We never thought it like, would happen. And everyone was like, oh my God, like he's gonna blow it. We're it's all about to fall apart. It's like he was up by so much <laughs> and it didn't matter. Everyone was still so nervous that he was gonna screw it up. We weren't and, wrong. <laughs> well, you were because he held, but he, just because he proved us wrong doesn't mean that we were wrong. They're <laughs> two different things. I can't, I can't deny your truth in that moment. But what I'm saying is, what I wanted to compare that to, because obviously those are those are the these are the two sort of long-awaited home slam winner, and obviously very different conversations around these two, like the, the Fred Perry discourse and all the Tim Henman of it all was around much, much longer than anything around Barty, and much louder and much sort of different kind of pressure. But the way that Murray inspired anxiety in people. Barty didn't do any of that. That's part, which is part of what I said this a couple of times to you or other people during the tournament. I was like, I like, I guess there's people are excited about Barty here. And certainly the viewership numbers absolutely show there was real Barty enthusiasm and looking front pages. The viewership was the main, like an indisputable thing. But her run lacked this kind of tension in a way. And it seemed at times it seemed not inevitable, but like kind of unchallenged. That's what I was like. I was kind of waiting for it to really get started and for the Barty run to like, really have its first sort of, which is we would have gotten, I think, in the fourth round, whether it was a close match or not, with the occasion of playing Osaka had she done that. 
Um, and we didn't get that. And I was kind of just waiting for it to get started in this way that it, it never totally did. And that's to her credit. It did, I think it did maybe one five in the second set, you could say, against Collins, or even just that whole, the occasion of the final already brings more of those, those nerves and stuff. So that was the first Murray comparison is that, is that yeah, she, she inspired confidence. People were not nervous of her in the stadium. You know, I was there most all the way. And like, people weren't, you know, even when she went down in the second set, there wasn't like, oh crap. It's just like, oh, she'll, she'll be fine. Like, you know, yeah, <laughs> this, no, will be, this, will, this will be fine. And this really sort of interestingly swaggy way. And it's different than, you know, as much as like, you want to think like, oh, first champion in 44 years, whatever, on some level, it's like an underdog story. Ash was, no, is no way underdog this part of her career. She's dominant. Just hadn't kind of gotten around to Australia yet and and did it uh, in her own way. And then the second one, sort of more to her mindset, the other Murray-ish thing, it reminded me of her third slam, reminded me a bit of Murray's third slam, in which it both, in Wimbledon 2016, where it both just sort of seemed like, this is for me. Like, this is like yeah. the fun one for me. And the way they both reacted to they both like sort of had these sort of like hollering kind of happy reactions that were not really in character for them. And because, you know, like Murray obviously like squats the ground the first time he wins US Open. It's this whole moment or whatever. Wimbledon, he starts yelling at Neil Harmon or something. I'm not sure what exactly he was doing after he won match point. And then, yeah, but he, he it was sort of just jubilation. It was sort of like, this is for me. I have my family here. I got Casey. I mean, Casey Casey's like on the court. <laughs> I have Casey <laughs> literally on the court for me. Like all of it was just sort of like, this is just Ash having like a nice time, very much at home in a way she doesn't usually get to be home. And yeah, it just felt like a, a happy um, occasion in this way of sort of like, yeah, like it's not a, I got, my first slam ahead of schedule. So it's hard to even think about that French Open because it was so ahead of schedule in her short trajectory. And then she gets Wimbledon, which is one she always wanted. And now she's just sort of having fun with it. And yeah. And, and yeah. I think that's a that's a really, really good read, that second point um, of, of this being for me, you know? And I think that had Ash won and reacted the same way that she would reacted in the first six matches, which is just quiet fist pump and you know, no big deal. I think that my memory or the impact I think of of Barty's run would feel a lot different. But that kind of that, as she said, I look like a goose, but it's all good. But that roar that she let out, and it wasn't just one roar. It was like five roars. She yelled twice walking to the net. And then three times. Yeah, it was prolonged. And three times as she like walked back to her camp, you know, and, and saluted the crowd. And she nearly forgot to salute the crowd. She was so in her own head. If you rewatch it, she kind of like does her whole thing. And starts quietly walking back to her chair and then realizes and like stops and has to turn around and salute the crowd. She almost completely forgot. So to the extent that you're saying like, this is for me, that is a little bit of that. And and I think that a lot of it was, I mean, I asked her about it, you know, in, in the Champions Corner conversation of like, you know, your three match point celebrations were all so different um, at the majors. The first one, you literally turned around and looked to your team and said, what the fuck? It's what she said. She couldn't believe it. She just, you know, and just the way that that tournament had unfolded with the rain delays and the back-to-back-to-backs and not playing on Chatre and all these other things that were going on, you know, she just kind of weird slam and she just kind of did it, you know, and it was so, there was no, she was so dominant in the, the final that it just was, she had time to realize like, holy crap, this is happening, you know, a little bit. The second one was, yeah, I mean, I think to understand Ash and to understand Ash in the Australian Open, you have to understand that Wimbledon was the dream. Yeah, Winning Australian Open is kind of like for the people and for the country, like you guys care. I don't care that it's the Australian Open. I care it's another slam. And I care that like for the first time of my three majors, 
my family's here. Like yeah. Diego reminded me this, which I didn't remember before Diego Barbieri, um, that at the at Roland Garros, her parents flew, but they didn't get they landed in London when her match had just started in Paris. So they didn't get to be there at Roland Garros, which I forgot. Um, and then obviously COVID with Wimbledon. Um, so her whole team being there, Casey, as you as you mentioned. Casey on the court. <laughs> Casey on the court, which is where we love Case, you know. Oh, we adore Casey. But uh, we got nothing but time for Casey. But, but yeah, you know, just this was the, in a lot of ways, the homecoming. Yep. This was Ash has done all this stuff overseas. And this was our opportunity as 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 a country and as a nation to celebrate her and to give her the love that, you know, she doesn't necessarily get overseas just because, you know, she's thousands of miles away from from home. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and ultimately it just felt like her third slam. Even because there's also, a, as you pointed out, the, the big difference between how the Fred Perry thing and the Wimbledon drought like defined British sport. Mm-hmm. The 44-year drought did not define Australian sport. Like they didn't treat I didn't get the sense that they treated that drought like it was as big of a deal as as they had tr- as like obviously the UK had treated the the whatever. Was, it's it's different too, but just thinking this is not the whole point, but like Aussie women have won slams elsewhere in this time. I mean, they won the other three slams actually. Yeah, Barney won Wimbledon and the French and and Sam Sosser won US Open. And I think Google Gong won Wimbledon at some point after. Um, at least Wimbledon at some point after Chris O'Neill won the Australian Open in 78. So, you know, these are, yeah, it just doesn't hold the same sort of mythos. And even, you know, even compared to like the French and like Yannick Noah or whatever, I think it really, maybe it's, maybe it's more about the uniqueness of the Fred Perry situation. I feel like we, I feel like in the U.S. we're aware of the Roddick thing very much. Um, but that's also because it's like no slams since Roddick 03. I don't think it's as focused on it being the U.S. Open. Maybe if they start winning elsewhere, we'll start focusing on U.S. Open. Yeah, I, I, just think, think, I think maybe the Perry thing is more unique than the Barty thing. Is I think it is unique, unique insofar as I think that like Wimbledon just, if you were to take the four majors and their host countries, Wimbledon means so much more as a sporting event, I feel like, to Britain than Roland Garros means to France or the US Open means the US or the Australian Open means to Australia. You know what I mean? Well, I was going to say about that just with Barty is one thing to sort of make this make maybe more sense is that Wimbledon means ton to Australians. Yes. Wim- yes. Wim- Australians love Wimbledon. They mythologize it. The it's UK like, means a lot to Australia. I mean, like. Yeah, obviously, it's still a quarter of their flag. Like, they still yeah. really care about the, the UK. And they have this, yeah, romanticization of Wimbledon. Wimbledon's still the thing for players like Pat Rafter, Leighton Hewitt. You know, Wimbledon was the thing. Uh, obviously, Rafter won US Open, so not Wimbledon. And Leighton did win at Wimbledon. Um, and for Barty, it was Wimbledon. Wimbledon was the yeah. thing. Um, and so, yeah, so that's. And whereas Australian Open is like, oh, hey, I have to have this other big tournament. Kangaroo, I guess. Let's go win it and have Casey on the court. Yeah, <laughs> it just, I mean, yeah, it was, it was lovely. It was lovely scenes. And like, it's one of those things where like, when I look back on that Wimbledon final or <laughs> the Australian Open final, I will remember the forehand ash hit at two all down break point. I will remember the one five down deficit. And then I will remember Ash Barty's roar. And I will remember Casey Delacqua. And then I'll remember Ash Barty drinking beers with Alicia and Casey on Channel 9, which stupidly became a point of controversy in Australia. I'm sorry. That Why? was so dumb. Oh, my God. I didn't see oh my God. I watched it, but I didn't know it was controversial. Apparently. 
we know how the tab, like the tabbies, the tabs can get of in Aus- where they pick up the, but like some, maybe host of some show, like The Voice or something in Australia, criticize Ash Barty for glorifying alcohol consumption. Oh please! And I was have like, you, home. Have you met an Australian? I was gonna say, have you walked down like Swanston Street, like you know, on a Tuesday afternoon? <laughs> Ash Barty is not the one that's glorifying alcohol consumption. I assure you. I mean, they handed her. They they pulled out a bucket of beers and handed one to her. Like they were. Yeah. And she like tried to defer and be like, "I'm not drinking by myself." And then everybody like grabbed a beer, and then she she finally did. Yeah, you, you it have, was. You have memorable moments. One we haven't mentioned. We sh- definitely should mention Yvonne coming of out course. on court. I shrieked. Ha- held in the trophy, and I was actually I had been thinking like, oh wow, Yvonne's not here, and she's been a little bit away from the spotlight, and so it wasn't totally like when when Ash won Wimbledon, for example, like she wasn't doing like the number of interviews and appearances you would kind of expect for her to do after that moment, given the 50 year anniversary um, since her win and stuff. So she's been a bit stepped back, uh, stepped back a bit. And so just, you know, honestly not sure how she's doing or anything. And then so just seeing her come out, I had thought to my, myself that like, they haven't actually, I did think like, they haven't said who's handing out the trophy. Like I'm curious, is it going to be Chris O'Neill? Like Chris O'Neill made sense in my head. It's like someone like, yeah, why not have it be Chris O'Neill? Sure. She brought out the trophy. Chris O'Neill did. I had a slight heart attack when they were like, we have a surprise. And then they he started re- reeling things off. And up until he said 13-time major champion or something, I was like, is it Margaret? <laughs> like, I had no I had no faith in the system at the uh-huh, moment. I clearly. just was I just was like I I was really nervous for about <laughs> 10 seconds there. Now Margaret Court, so WWA West Virginia is like all like sealed off. People can't travel to Ah, uh, okay. Right so she is stuck over there. I just went on my flight home. Uh, was like working in Queensland doing some sort of brief job. And he was saying he was flying to California just because he couldn't go home to to Western Australia. He's like, well, I got I want to go somewhere and I can go to California, but I can't go home. So I'm going to California. It and he was the West <laughs> Coast of a of a of a continent. Of a country. Yeah. <laughs> and on the flight, he was like, now when I get to California, will they let me go to Utah? I was like, yes. Yes they will. <laughs> you can go borders? to Utah. What borders? <laughs> <laughs> it was just weird to me. Like he was like all the places he named. It was like Utah. Like yeah, you you can go to Utah. Sure. <laughs> I don't know if he wants to snowboard or ski or whatever. But he's, love um, it. I hope wherever he is, he's doing okay. Um, he did not seem to have much of a plan. <laughs> That's fair. Speaking, but of, let me uh, let me pose yeah. let me pose a quick question to you, Ben, because yeah, I'm curious please. your thoughts on this. Is okay. So Ash has got three. Mm-hmm. She she wins her third in dominant fashion. Yeah. She's an all court threat. She's one off of Naomi in terms yep. of the younger set mark. You yep. know, the, the post-Serena era mark, I guess, active. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Venus is up there as well. And she's four behind the Venus mark. And she's 25 years old. And this goes to my next question, which was sort of going to be like, what is going to challenge Barty's dominance? Because Barty has now won, you know, uh, three slams in, in roughly three years. But number one, I mean, the consistency is what's really there. And like, I know people people focus in because there was a lot of attention on another player in the other draw about um, a lack of top 10 wins at slams. Barty only has one in her career, which is this weird sort of outlier when you look at things because she sent against the top 20 as I looked at. So it's similar, but not exactly the same. Since the start of 2021, she is 17 and one against the top 20. So like she yep. can beat all the best players. Like that's not yep. on the big stage. It's not the question. She just hasn't gotten to. They're just not showing up in front of her, which is a whole different issue, but it's really- right. It's different than like losing to them. It's right. that she isn't taking losses. I mean, right. her, that top 20 mark is like, it's a standout stat. 
in a time when we're all like chaos and everybody can beat everybody and depth of tour. And then you have somebody who's 17 and two against the top 20 since she got to number one. It's kind of wild. Let's remember, I think people gloss over as we've been thinking about her dominance that she got hurt at the French Open too. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's she like, she could have won that French Open had she been She won Stuttgart. She made the final in Madrid and she made what quarters of Rome and pulled out with the arm injury because of the heavy conditions. She pulled out like after taking the first set against Coco and was like, I'm good, which was like a weirdly swaggy like retirement. I'm kind of like, it was a very Ash Barty retirement. Like, just so you know, (laughs) I did win the first set, (laughs) but I'm going to go ahead and call it now (laughs) because my arm hurts. (laughs) But I guess so. the question is like, what is going, like, can Ash win like, another slam or two this year like those are those are the questions like you said yeah she is in the mix for all all three of the remaining ones um Wimbledon I think is gonna be her most comfortable conditions wise I think that's a, a good place for her the French I think it's still even though she won at first I think it's still I think a lot of things broke her way that year sure um but she did play really well on in the clay lead up in in 2021 and what she did in Stuttgart and in Madrid was super impressive so I'm, I don't think she's like an overwhelming favorite there but she if it started tomorrow or you know in a month I think she still would be the favorite, just not prohibitively. Um, we'll see how other players like Svantec or whoever else might contend on like Krejcikova, um, how, how what kind of what kind of form they're in. But yeah, that's gonna be interesting to see. I, I yeah, I think that she is kind of on trajectory. You just never know. Like, and we don't know what the future holds in any athlete's life in terms of injury, in terms of personal stuff, in terms of new challengers. You know, maybe all of a sudden, who knows? Uh, who knows? Brenda Furitova shows up and starts winning all the slams. You never know what's going to happen in, in yeah. this world. But uh, yeah, but it, it's just interesting to see. Like you have to step back and be like, okay, how do you stop Marty? Which kind of gets me, I want to also talk about a person I think is an interesting narrator. We talked we talked about um, Barty, I think on our pre-show, about how like controlled and precise she is with her, how she talks about things in, in press and how yeah. everything is very intentional and she keeps things very much on her terms. Craig Tizer is a bit more of a wild card Love. in there. Every time Craig's on the mic, I'm like, I'm tuning in, bro. <laughs> it's an interesting sort of insight into her. We just talked to him from before. He's, I think he was in an especially loose mood this week, but he's always been a little bit looser than Ash, obviously. He's very, very buttoned up. And he had a, a funnily sort of swaggy comment about how, like, you can't just go out essentially and practice hitting slices for half an hour and then think you're going to be ready to play Ash Barty, essentially. So I guess that's one question, like, how much can the field this is a question maybe for coaches more than maybe either of us to answer, but how much can you really work on trying to prepare um, and game plan for one opponent? Because in tennis, generally you get two days notice at a slam, one day at other tournaments sometimes for who you're going to play. So you can't, it's diff- very different. I talked to Andy Murray about this once for a, in a times one-on-one column we did. Like boxers have like months to prepare for each other tactically. Like, you know who you're playing for a long time and you can really train in preparation for a specific matchup. Whereas in tennis, you don't do that. So for Barty, it'd be very different if people had months to train for a Barty match, essentially, than, if, than what they have now. So should the field be like adjusting? Granted, she only has to play seven players at the tournament, but should the field be like really working hard on... Maybe this goes to her like needing a clearer, consistent rival, one person who can like know they're going to play Barty that much. Maybe that's, if that, maybe that was Sabalenka last year on some level. Yeah, but what do you think? Like, should the field be retooling to face Barty? Yeah, I was talking to our our good friend David Avakian about this because he was commentating for Eurosport and watching a lot of Barty's matches. And he was kind of saying, you know, there what had become, at least in his opinion, like clear was that it felt like the field was years off in terms of the development of their games, in terms of being able to, being able to catch her on pure X's and O's. 
In other words, you'll get Barty wins because Ash doesn't play a great match one day or maybe she goes through a little bit of a slump or a burnout, you know, you know, gets tired, et cetera, et cetera. But at pure X's and O's, like peak Barty who can kind of beat her when things are going their their way because it takes a certain skill set in order to get yourself out of her patterns, to get her to stop dictating you, um, getting her to stop being controlling you on the court. And we've seen moments of that. Obviously, the the, the Beijing final between Naomi and Ash, you know, was a great final. And mm-hmm. it was the one, obviously, we were point away twice of, of seeing that in, in the fourth round. I think everybody would have liked to have seen it. Who else? I mean, obviously, yeah, Sabalenka obviously beat her on clay in altitude in Madrid. Uh, different sets of conditions. And played, we, we, played, we played her the week before that, too. Like, there was a little bit of like yep. a, a And the week before that, in yeah. not week before, but uh, Miami's quarters, they played yeah. as well. Um, so they she had gotten a few different looks at her. But you do get the sense that if you are a top player, does it get to the point now where you do have to start in like incorporating into your regular practices and ash barty block you know because it's not just about getting hitting slices because it's not just about here's a low ball that comes at your 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 feet and so let's sit here and let's try and dig these out on your forehand or backhand side so that you get used to the cut of it but it's what she does with the slice of okay you might get that one back but now she's in complete control of the rally and now she's going to drag you all over the court and put you in other uncomfortable positions where now the forehand is uncomfortable. Now you're in the midcourt. Now she's yeah. pulled you in and she lobs you. There's like four There's like four or five different steps in terms of how Ash Barty beats you with that slice. It's not just the shot itself. So you start to wonder, right? I mean, like once, once you know, Serena came on tour and had the big serve and, and other people started, you know, the girls started to return a lot better. Because now they were bringing in and started serving you know, better themselves. They knew they had to hold and starting serving serving better themselves. You know, so there it's a little bit of that of responding to. Now, one of the things that that I think we had picked up on during this tournament, it was a lot more. Again, we talk about Ashen being very intentional of her language and, and the rhetoric that she uses to narrate her own career, but the use of the word uncomfortable came mm-hmm. up a lot more during this fortnight than it had in the past. It was something that, you know, in terms of like my job is to go out there and make my opponent uncomfortable and just the tactical wherewithal that she has. And it it it, it is philosophical at its base level of being very aware of the opponent that is standing across the, the, the net from her and being prepared to make tactical adjustments accordingly. And I think even from that base philosophical level, not a lot of players on the WTA tour think that way it's a lot of I'm just going to do my thing and see if it works out and so I don't even know like if if that's already kind of how you approach your tennis you already have to take a lot of like um it takes a change in mindset in addition to the technical and tactical changes right so aside from as Alex McPherson pointed out um on the insider a recap like aside from coaches getting going deep on her serve and identifying service serving patterns things like that being more intentional about identifying the Barty patterns and getting their players comfortable with at least like okay we know she runs these five plays and we know that you can pro- hear her, her serving patterns at least maybe that would close the gap but that's again not something that you fix overnight yeah right we've talked about this before just sort of like that the women in women's sense compared to the men I, I still cover both obviously you've covered men for a bunch of years like the women seem less sort of willing to really overhaul 
their preparations or their games based on an opponent. There's this sort of inward focus. And maybe I think this has to be coach driven on a large level, just like I'll play my game and, you know, it's important for me to play my game. Well, sometimes your game is going to lose to the number one. You know, sometimes you need to do something a little special with number one. And I loved one, one that- year Chris Everett had a great quote on that of like, I, I can't remember whether it was in Singapore or like some pr- some press conference, maybe it was on ESPN, but somebody was like talking about the whole, maybe just play your game sort of thing. And she talked about how she had got, she had lost to Tracy Austin like during that that stretch when Tracy kind of was yeah. became like the young the, this, the yeah. next Chrissy, you know, and Chrissy was like it was Shriver's coach, uh, Don, who had been walking by and was and Chrissy was getting ready to play Tracy Austin. And he was like, so how are you going to play her today? And she's like, well, I'm just going to like play my game. Like she kind of said something very similar. And Don was like, well, that ain't been working. Like if you're going to do that, you're just going to lose again. And Chrissy thought about that. And that match, it was like, I think maybe at the US Open or the Lipton, I can't remember. She took Tracy to three sets. And that, and then the next time they played each other, she made a bunch of adjustments, played more aggressively. And then when they played together, she started to flip it back and she started to beat Tracy again. But that's the thing is like, you can't. Like if if you're in that mindset, it doesn't it doesn't you pay have, off. You gotta try stuff. I remember you know asking Sharapova this at some point about Serena. You know, like you ever thought about just like playing nothing like yourself, like going out there, not like jump balling or whatever, but doing something just like maybe I maybe didn't say jump ball, doing something just like really try to disrupt the rhythm because it's not right. She kind of it's an interesting that's an interesting sort of side. I don't want to get too deep into Sharapova versus Serena right rabbit hole. It is a whole different topic for a different podcast series someday. But um, but she kind of didn't buy that premise. She was like, I'm me, I'm great. You know, and she was obviously a great yeah. player. Um, but like I was like, but also it's not working at all. Well, <laughs> at I all mean, for you, Maria. <laughs> and this goes back to the US Open, Shelby. Yeah. The way Shelby yes. beat Ash was if you watch that match and you think that's how Shelby Rogers, that's what Shelby Rogers tennis is. You are wrong. And she and she she junked her. She off-paced her. She out-physicaled her. She ran everything down, prolonged rallies, and it worked. I mean, um, and she said afterwards, like she had lost like what? She was like 0-4 against Ash that year, mm-hmm. something like that. And I don't think she had won a set. Maybe she had won a set, I can't remember. But she was like, clearly it hadn't been working what I was doing. So I just went out there. I was like, I'm just gonna do something new. And it yep. worked. And and so there's a little bit of that, and I give I give Shelby a lot of credit for that because it was not comfortable to watch her play the way that she was playing. I was like, what is she doing? But it worked. She was so, winning is what she was doing. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. So I, this is kind of a, hopefully a good transition into our runner-up uh, from the women's tournament, Danielle Rose Collins. I looked up Medvedev's middle name, so I'm ready for all, all three. Of this <laughs> yeah, don't worry. So we have uh, in Collins someone who. As I said, you know, because she was here without a coach or there without a coach. I'm no longer there. She was in Australia without a coach. And she was like being a very diligent student about it. She was taking time to prep herself for her her games. As we've seen in that famous video of her um, calling her then coach on court, which is like Monica Um, Yeah, that she, uh, you know, she doesn't always necessarily appreciate other coaches. And so I think maybe she's just better coaching herself. And she coached her, she coached a player into the final of the Australian Open. So like she should take pride in that. We don't see too many female players ever really going coachless and having big success like that. Uh, men's has happened a few more. Federer famously was coachless for a bunch of years. But uh, but the, for the women, it's, it's still rare either tour. And it's rare for the women for sure. Anyway, so so Danielle Collins gets there and had a game plan against, played well against Barty. And, and she said afterwards, like, I thought my game plan was pretty good. Like I, yep. I was able to do, to make impacts where I thought I could. Clearly she had some success, you know, get up 5-1 and then 
Party kind of rallied and very quickly again erased that the deficit. Um, but Collins, I think, should have her head held very high about how she played this whole tournament. Obviously, making the final, the way she beat Fiontech, super super emphatic. Let me talk a bit about that match. Yeah, I was just super impressed by by Collins. Just I think we'll talk about Ashley as a player first. Like I just think that what she was able to do on court. We've seen her. She's just kind of peak Pierce kind of thing where she sometimes it just seems unplayable. She just sees the ball like a watermelon and absolutely just swings out and crushes it. We've seen her do this a few times, especially in Australia. She's done it a lot, various Australian tournaments. Uh, she owned to Kerber that one time in the, in the fourth round of the Australian Open. Crazy, crazy dominant match. She, I've, I saw her beat like two and over two and one Svitolina once in an outer court in Brisbane uh, when she was for was first. Her, that was the first her like, whoa, like, yeah, whoa. Uh, kind of resolved that same year. Um, yeah, she, she can do this and, but she also was just, yeah, being smart and, and tactical and just a, just a pro about things. And that's why that resonates with me. I mean, what a great platform for Danielle Rose Collins, you know, like, again, like kind of like a, a cult figure bursts on the scene. People don't know what to make of her, don't know what personality and also game wise. And it's funny too, because early on, it's very easy to forget now, but early on, like when she was making those runs in Indian Wells in Miami, she was a junker. She was like a little bit, I mean, now she's much more aggressive of a player, but she was really a lot more kind of like scrappy in her tennis when she first came onto the scene. And she's obviously evolved her game to understand like this is, again, what will work uh, is, is, is I need to be more powerful. I need to be stronger. I need to have a better serve. I need all these sorts of things. And she's absolutely made those adjustments. Yeah, I think in the final, it became just an execution issue ultimately um, down the stretch. And obviously with Barty serving the way that she did as well. I mean, yeah. Danielle was 5-1 up. It's not like she collapsed. She was two points away from taking that set three separate times. Yeah. Um, and each time, Ash came up with either four hands or serves that there was nothing that Danielle could do. I think I went back and watched those games. It was a, a span of like maybe seven points where she might have had an opportunity. And like, I think one, she missed a soft backhand, but every other one was finished with like a Barty winner or or service winner or something like that. So it was, you know, ultimately that. And then, you know, Barty plays a perfect tiebreak in the end. And Danielle said that she was feeling her back a little bit, which had been bothering her. Uh, that's why she hadn't been sitting on the changeovers since I think the Meritons match, uh, as recommended by the physio. So, you know, she didn't get to kind of play that match on her the terms that she would have wanted to, which is like 100% fit and healthy. But mm-hmm. look, yeah, it's the end of a slam. That's everybody. Everybody's kind of physically compromised in that seventh match, unless you're Ash, who only spent six hours on court going into it. So it's 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 a little bit different. But yeah, but it was a great showcase for her. She handled it incredibly well. She was very gracious afterwards, like and during the whole thing. And, um, you know, you, you love to see it. Top tenor. I love that that she'll be interviewed more. That she'll be, you know, doing more press conferences and things like that, because I feel like even for you and I, two people who have probably interviewed Danielle more than most, um, she's still she's still an onion with many Mm -hmm. layers that we want to peel back. And so there's a lot of great opportunity there to kind of continue to tell her story and help her narrate her own story. And because it's a great one and it's very inspiring in every single way. You had a you had a like question that was like sort of leading, but also just really about good in the in the press conference. It was like you can have this platform now, of, like you're gonna get to talk more. And she's been sort of she's run at times a bit hot and cold with press, and times yep. you know she said like especially she's having you know whenever especially she's having various medical issues, just not wanting to expend energy on sort of being 
as you know fully on. engaged let's say or on and, and present and press as she might have been previously in her career um like the, you know the famous gif of her or not gif the clip of her laughing was you know early a relatively early 2019 clip um fewer of those moments lately but she as she kind of got comfortable you know in the room uh in this tournament she did sort of loosen a bit more and, and speak more and yeah and she's a super interesting articulate smart opinionated she's a um, dynamic woman person as yeah. she said herself and she's right she, and she backs herself of... and she has and she has this confidence i love if people haven't seen it i've tweeted it before i think racket tweeted it this profile of, of daniel collins from 2019 in racket i love and it just sort of gets to her her daniel collinsness in this way that i just find <laughs> there were a couple of screenshots of it that were unattributed floating around of her like saying like go to the ballet or whatever like it was yeah. that, that, that kind of going uh get semi-viral on tennis twitter uh, during the final but that's where it is it's, it's worth reading and and you get a sense of her and her her considerable chutzpah and yeah. uh and that's not even scratching the surface, I think. And and so, you know, and then on top of that, especially with the way that she beat Sviantek and then, you know, did push Barty harder than anybody else in the tournament. Like, you just kind of get the sense that, like, separate and aside from being a personality, which we love on the WTA Tour, we love a personality. Mm -hmm. It's it's what many would argue separates, like, WTA fandom from, from ATP fandom a little bit is, like, this love of, like, mess and personality and quotes and all the, the stuff that kind of has been There's built up over time. a lot of ATP fans who love the mess these days, but yes. Sure, right. but I'm saying historically it has been what draws – it drew it drew you in. It drew me in. I mean, this course, is – You know, this yeah. is what – this is the foundation of WTA fandom is enjoying that sort of stuff and enjoying personalities and quirkiness and all that. But mm -hmm. um, separate and aside from that, just game-wise – she has a game that can upend anyone on any given day. Yep. And so it's very, very interesting, you know, for her to beat Sviantek the way that she did in the semis and then for Iga to come in and just be like, yeah, no, I know how that feels. Like I, I've, I've now seen. I loved Iga's the, presser after that. Yeah, Iga's presser after that was really great. It was, it was totally acknowledging what happened on the court, which is like, you know, she zoned. And it's really hard to beat somebody when they're in the zone and just, you know, in a very big match, you know, to be able to cop and understand that that's what was happening. You did nothing wrong. Like, you know, like sometimes sometimes days are like that. And Iga has obviously been on that side of the net a lot of times at slams where she is also treeing. But um, but yeah, but to see that display against Iga, which, as Ben said, she, we've seen against Kerber, we've seen against Fidelina, we've seen these moments with Danielle where she's just looks unreal. unplayable yeah. unplayable especially on return um and she just breaks people at will it's it makes you very very excited that this person is on the board and will go theoretically deeper at big tournaments because now she'll get like seated protection in the draws you know and then hopefully those rivalries and and getting to see her play head to head against top 10 players top 15 players regularly will be a, a thing which is and i think i think especially having been the a college champion like she was um, I think she's going to be more comfortable and I'll just know it's her. I think she'd be pretty comfortable, like being kind of an alpha or a queen bee, you know, kind of like in the room on the tour. Like, I think, I don't think she, I, I don't, we will see how she handles it. Cause she did make a pretty big jump. I don't think she's ever been top 20 before. Now she's top 10. So significant jump from Danielle Collins there. But I, I, I thinking about it, assuming again, her, you know, health, various things stay good. I, I think that she handles as well. And I think that she, um you know will like being us number one i think she's kind of a fun person up there i am bummed 
that the universe conspired to keep it away from Jesse Pagula. I am really mad about it. I am so (laughs) mad about it. I wanted Jesse Pagula to be American number one so badly going into AO and like just looking at the point drop offs and everything. You were like, Jesse Pagula will finish this tournament world number one or as American number one. And that she didn't get it just really bums me out. And she has like so many like regular points to defend throughout the year that this was kind of her best shot in a lot of ways because of the 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 for, the for context she was way ahead in the just 2021 points she deserved it yes. in 2021 and didn't get it because of the semi-frozenness of the rankings and kenan keeping her points for so long um but pagula deserves as the kids pagula said. deserves and i will say this this was a great tournament for jesse and yeah. i will say that like one of the things that because you were mentioning danielle and she'll handle it really well being american alpha she is 28 in the yeah. same way that Jesse, once she makes her breakthrough, it's like like last year, I remember she was constantly being like, I'm not a young American. Like, don't like people think that if you haven't broken through that when you break through, you're like a young American who's breaking through. She's like, I'm like 26, guys. Like, yeah. you know, like I'm not a baby. Jesse Vigola was like a 2014 NCR guest. She's been yeah. around. <laughs> <laughs> she's been she well she's been she's been close and near and dear to your heart for many years because of the hockey connection but mm-hmm. i just like talking to her more than that even i just i just such as a great talker and you've been on that train very early i kind of yeah. i'm late to it because I, I kind of just followed the results and as she started breakthrough and talked to her more like jesse is just an absolute des- delight to talk to because she's such an adult in the room yeah. to where like what i really loved especially at the australian open was how completely she's one of those players that you can you know that handful of players that you can ask about anything and she takes it on including like she's like i'm not superstitious so i draw you can talk about it and and like and she, i think it was in one of the small rooms you might have been she was in there. breaking down baptiste inglis yeah. like she is engaged and paying yeah. attention and it was great and yeah but you can ask her be like hey how, how do you think this match is going to turn out and she'll take it on you know like yeah. and I just really loved it. I I wish I and I hope that Jesse gets more gets more fan love because she she deserves and she just deserves. even just a, even just fan love or just sort of you know, appreciation respect because yeah like you said she's yeah. an adult in the room she's a pro she's there's a very very low baloney quotient for for her and a sport that offers sometimes copious baloney no no baloney for 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 JPEG so so that yeah so that's good for her you mentioned Madison English I saw recently I, I guess it maybe sort of before but you see English have you seen the video of English reacting when she hears what the third round prize money is. It's no. kind of some interview. Someone, it's cute. Like I don't. I, I'm actually now that I said, I'm not sure where to find it. But English made third round um, mm-hmm. and won. I think like two hundred fifty thousand Aussie dollars from it. And it gets mentioned in some interview that she's doing, and she just sort of like stops. She's just like she like almost like starts like crying, which is like it's a huge. She's like, yeah, now I can hire a coach. Now I can do this and that. And she's just this like moment of like whoa for her that's anyway it's a cool sort of uh, and well learned because she took out fernandez in the first round like decisively it wasn't like she lucked herself through and baptiste is not an easy baptiste is that's that's the one that's going to age well yep yeah so Um, that was that was good on her and she had she was up a set on canepi to go full uh full circle back to austin's one lingering tizer comment that i wrote down that i wanted to mention tizer this thing after the final talking about the u.s open saying that he doesn't think this was this was a very unbarty comment i was just confused this the, again the sort of the divergence between these two talkers was i was actually surprised it's not the moment but i hope at some point someone's gonna ask Bar- ask Barty about this the comments because they're interesting kaiser was complaining that ash Barty can't win the u.s open in his words unless they change the balls because he used them different men's and women's balls the women as people may know have the balls that have the red text on them the of the logo men have the black text um, and they're lighter and they sort of just fly the warmer. There's a story once about 
Andy Roddick uh, playing and getting new balls to yeah. serve. And he gets handed a women's can of balls or maybe just one ball. And he's like, oh, I could hit a bunch of aces with this ball. <laughs> but I'll give it back. <laughs> anyway, so I was surprised by this. And Barney has not made it past the fourth round at the US Open. I was surprised by this just because it's not something people talk about. I think it's one of the first things that makes it unusual. And then like, just looking at it, like the number, the, if you look at who does well at the US Open, well, obviously Raducanu and Fernandez, not saying because it came out of nowhere. And that's one data point. We don't know what they're going to do in their careers. But like players who do well at the US Open, are players who do well elsewhere. Like we're talking about like your Serena's, your Azarenka's. Sam Stoser also plays a game, played a game with a lot of like top spin and stuff. And she won the US Open. Osaka obviously won Australia and US Open twice. I I did not buy this premise. It's what I'll say. I It sounded weirdly excusey to me. Um, I don't think they're going to change the balls for Ash Barty's sake. It's interesting why they, and I, I hadn't realized it was the only one that did that. I knew, I knew it was did it, but I didn't realize it was the only one that did it. Yeah, I I was a bit confused with these comments. Um, and I just think that Barty's a good enough player that she can adjust, is my take. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to a bunch of different people about it, and the general consensus of the people that I've spoken to, and it wasn't a lot of coaches, it was just more pundits, is that everybody's like, oh, well, that's an easy way to immediately after uh, winning your third slam on a third different surface off. to take pressure off of Ash and 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 that yeah. sort of thing, which fair enough, um, you know, not to not let the headlines be the day after, you know, uh, yeah. this monumental victory to be about the US Open and a tournament that is not taking place for another six months, you know, six, seven months. So, you know, maybe it's a little bit of that. But if that is the conversation and we know how technical that team is, yeah. I mean, Craig wasn't very happy with the balls that were used at the finals in Guadalajara. Like, you know, and Ash is one that talks about tension and 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 um, uh, uh, racket stuff and string stuff. Like, they're very, yeah. very – they're as tactical as you would think a Barty – a technical as a yeah. Barty team would be. Like, the smallest of details to, mm -hmm. you know, whether she's the best person to narrate conditions on a court. Like, Again, she – yeah, Bro. she notices when, like, she, I think, that, I can't remember what tournament it was, like, it was, but she was like, oh, yeah, no, you could definitely, the minute you step on, you can sense the grit, you can sense this and that. And, you know, meanwhile, there's a lot of other players are just like, oh, just play, which, honestly, maybe it's better for them. For because some work now it's, yeah, because now like, this is. Like Serena, for example. Mm -hmm. Serena, anytime she, gets, anytime she gets asked a question about, like, the conditions yeah. or the balls, she's like. I don't know, but I grew up basically She's always like, like, in Compton Courtney. playing with like frozen <laughs> eggshells for balls. Like, I don't care what the balls are like. I'll hit anything and it'll be a winner. The most, eye roll, the most eye rolls I've ever gotten is when I just, I don't think about it. And I, I would consistently ask Serena about the conditions and she would just always just be like, Courtney, I like, we've done this. Like, it's not, I'm like, I know I just, it was a habit. I I apologize. It's, I don't know why I asked. Um, but you know, to the extent that that is the case, I mean, the U S open does flavor, favor a flatter hitter. It doesn't necessarily favor spin. Even Bianca, she hits a flat forehand. They're the games of the, the games of the people who have succeeded at the U S open. Yes, they succeed off of and away from New York, but they are players who, don't play like Ash. And that was, that was Tyson's point. Like, a player like play. Ash. Well, yes, that's also true. And so, um, so I just, I just, I just, yeah, I don't. And Ash won, do they use the same balls in New York and Cincinnati? They, they, yeah, that was the thing. It's like, that's what, that, that, that was the point where I thought, well, that's a bit baloney. I'm not going to buy it. Is that like you won Cincy with your brain fried? Cause yeah. Tizer said that they should have shut it down after Wimbledon. She was just completely out of it after that. 
Um, but she goes and she wins Cincinnati and she served for the match against Rogers. And if she wins that match, who knows, given the way that that tournament eventually played out she played like, at the U.S. Open, quarters, she would have played yeah. Raducanu. And I remember thinking at the time yeah, when Ash, when Ash looked like she was going to, it was Raducanu, right? Yeah, it was Raducanu. That was yeah, I'm, just remember, I'm just trying to count my rounds. It was fourth round. It went fourth round Raducanu because then quarters for Raducanu was Ben Chich and then, uh, yeah, and then. Uh, Sack? No. Plisco? Uh, no. No. Sack. Uh, no. Uh, no, who was her? Who was her semi? Sack. 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 Yeah. Sack, sack. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So if if Ash closes it out, maybe a very different tournament, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we all know that Ash Barty is good enough to win the U.S. Open. Like yes. that's just not even a question. Um. She's won Miami. She's but want, you know won Cincy. But if they're putting her on night session, maybe that's a completely different kettle of fish. If she had gone to play how, day how, session, maybe it's how, different. How in New York. how Halepian it is, where you know she the sort of noise and hubbub of New York and the it's it's yeah. not Wimbledon over there. And maybe maybe that's something that Barty is not as easily accustomed to. Those sort of ambiance off court things can matter at, yep. in New York for players. Um, and she said like at the her Roland Garros run, it just happened so fast she didn't have time to think about it. Like yeah. there wasn't the day off marinating on what you're trying to accomplish where the noise can get into it. Wimbledon is quiet. There is no noise. Uh even Melbourne this year quieter generally speaking of a run-up you know and everything like that for her yeah i was gonna say the media circus like when i went to barty's pre-press i was one of only one or two reporters in the room physically at her pre-press and i was like what is happening here but like in this certain way actually one interesting angle which i've heard and said a few times i do think actually um benefited from Novak. yeah she benefited from the Djokovic debacle like that created a lot of cover that gave people something else to talk about when they otherwise would have been really starting the drumbeat for Barty. That would that, think, that was I a lot she, of ink that was not dead. That was a lot of columns. Column a lot of space cover. Flew a lot of cover over Barty. That didn't didn't involve her. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah. Uh, we can get more specifically, unless there's other lingering wounds. We can use that as a transition to the men. Sure. Um, yes, I'm Chuck, which obviously not in the tournament. Famously, you may have heard, um, but that left uh, and and I guess actually here's a good segue. Like when. Djokovic pulled out when I was doing, you know, radio hits or TV hits, or whatever. The comment I would get a lot was, well, this leaves open the doll, the door for Rafael Nadal, who also has won 20 grand slams. And I left. Always, always was like, yeah, it, you know, it does. Technically, yeah, you know, Rafa is there. And he did win a tournament. He beat Maxi and Cressy. Um, but you know, like, and he also beat uh who else did he beat in that tournament? Not no one big. Um Anyway, beat some beat some people, Barankis maybe. Um, now I just can't remember who we played. I'm just making up names. Um, <laughs> maybe it was Barankis. We'll find out. I'll, I'll look. At it. Now I'm curious. But there was this whole like thing of like it's kind of very typical kind of Serena way of like people who are more casual observers of the sport try to tell the story of a tournament, hone in on the most familiar name left in the draw, and make it about them. And what's crazy about this is that Rafa actually won this tournament. Yep. Like he. I will say, you know, his draw was workable. It gave him a good sort of path to get into it. He didn't, he avoided a potential fourth round. He could have gotten against Karatsa, which I had circled when the draw came out as someone that could have been like danger for him. Karatsa goes down to Manorino, so he avoids that. Yeah, he he had a little bit of space and some prep time before he didn't have to play Zverev, who lost to Shapovalov. Well, Shapovalov was a totally tough opponent and completely legit, real. That's not a big break getting Shapovalov in a quarterfinal. Not the way Shapo was playing. No, he's playing in these deep rounds. This was very much, uh, you know, handle thing. He played uh, Hatchinoff, who's someone who he's had tough times with before, but 
that was a, a win where he actually sort of started waking up after playing Giron and, and Yannick Hansen in the first two rounds. So I'll just say Rafa took this sort of like really casual uh, idea and like made it reality in this way. That's just, it shouldn't happen this way. It shouldn't happen. With this. I'm sure, I'm sure I'm guessing, not that I care about this, but I'm guessing like bookmakers lost a lot of money on this tournament because like someone who's like the casual, you know, like, oh, I know mm. Rafa. Oh, oh, I'll put some money on Rafa. Like those bets don't usually work out. Those are usually kind of suckery bets, honestly, yeah. betting on someone like Nadal to win this tournament. But hey, he did. And he wins it. Uh, the final is incredible. Um, but we'll get, let's get to the sort of just a more big picture Rafa run. Courtney, what do you make of, of Rafa sort of making his way through this tournament and leaving with his... Our buddy Beth uh, Nadal News um, was saying, and I agree with this actually in a lot of ways. She's like, more than the 21 Grand Slams, I'm just like happy that Rafa won a second Australian Open. Yeah, I heard that. A- him from, yeah. I heard that a lot from Rafa fans. I, I I hosted this impromptu Twitter spaces after the final that went for six hours. <laughs> your, we'll get to this, but like your skill, your talk radio host skills, marathon sessions, amazing. It was I never my intention, that. but I just was like, I was still wired from the final and I was like, whatever. And there were Rafa fans who clearly had some emotions and mm-hmm. some feels. And I had hosted some Twitter spaces going into it where I had heard from some of them who were like, some of them were like, he's going to do it. And I was calling them crazy. And then other ones who were like, I'm just, I don't know. I really want it for, you know, so I knew that there was like that energy out there. So I a lot of Rafa this- fans thought he was going to get destroyed in this final. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that anybody who is a tennis person thought that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, it was it was only no, your pure no love and faith. No. Um, because Medvedev, it's freaking Medvedev, guys. Like, he's freaking good. And he's a freak of nature. He's a physical freak of nature. He can tactically solve. It just felt like it was Medvedev all the way. And so I hosted this Twitter space, and it was really less like me talking and just more just giving people I was just tapping on speakers and just being like your mic is live go and just letting Rafa fans talk through their feelings and a lot of it was that was just like they were so happy that he got a second Australian Open that 21 was not the point it was not something that they were even concerned about just given all of his kind of bad luck at at Melbourne Park over the Mm -hmm. years being able to now have the grant the career grand slam twice over you know having one AO twice now but it was really that for me, I mean, I put, I said it on Twitter, you know, as the as he took the third set, I was like, if Rafa pulls this off, if I was like, for me, as a casual, as as an as a big three agnostic, mm-hmm. let's be clear about that. I don't have I don't I don't care. I don't care about 21. I don't care about these three guys. Not my not my peeps. Um, we all know who the true goat is. But um, um, <laughs> as, as as evidence, <laughs> as evidenced by the fact that he's already been discussed on this podcast, even before we got to the ATP part of it. Um, but um, I was like, this will be for me the most impressive and unreal accomplishment by Rafa Nadal, not just in that final, but to do what he did throughout the tournament, you know, to come through physically, recover from five set, tough five set matches in the heat, um, you know, come through against Chapo, come through against Berrettini, come, you know, like it was really, really impressive. And it just watching that final and just how at times messy it was and sometimes it was just bad and but like battling and fighting and almost going into this zen state in that Mm -hmm. final set Rafa you know of just point by point 
playing it. And I just I just found it incredibly impressive serving for it and failing. And as he said, thinking, oh, fuck, here we go again. <laughs> um, and uh, as he said famously on Eurosport. But um, and then getting, you know, breaking the next game and then getting another chance and doing it. Um, it I think in every way I was soup. I was incredibly moved by it. I think that it's a sporting feat that will not be recognized by the wider sporting world for what it is, um, because I thought that it was incredible. Um, and yeah, I mean, I tip my cap, I tip my visor like it. That was unreal. And I did it's not see it coming. It's one of those things where like more casual fans of the sport might not realize like how far Rafa was from this sort of expectation. I remember, I remember this still resonates with me, but hearing, reading back in the day, um, our, our our guy, John Wertheim, writing a column after, this is way back in 2005, when Venus Williams won Wimbledon. Um, and she it was her first Grand Slam title in four years. And he wrote something like, you know, I can imagine casual fans being like, oh, you know, those Williams girls, they win everything, right? Like, you know, who cares? Like, but no, but no, like, that's not what happened here. This is Venus shaking it off, precisely winning, you know, after she had been out for four years, had a bunch of injuries, you know, had all sorts of stuff going on with her and her family at this point. And to, to do it the way that she did it was incredible. And just yet, because she's Venus Williams and she's a Williams in that sort of extended, she got maybe some partial credit for Serena dominance that she wasn't, I mean, she was crossing that a lot of times, but you know, for trophies, she wasn't winning. Um, don't discount them because of that. And I feel this right. very much this way about Rafa because Rafa openly said, like he was, he was having conversations with his team in late 2021 about if he'd be able to return to the competition at all. Like if he was, yeah. you know, he didn't use the R word for retirement, but he was sort of hinting like it was getting dark in those conversations about, you know, just saying maybe there's not a way back from this. And I was thinking actually, even last year, like, is there a chance that I was at Nadal's last ever match and it was in Washington? <laughs> like <laughs> that was on the board at some point as a real possibility for his career. But seeing his sort of you know, and then he comes back and he gets COVID in, in December and had, you know, real symptoms for several days and not yeah. just, you know, not nothing. And he said he came down to Australia basically because he didn't want to feel left out and that normally he's sort of a perfectionist or doesn't go enter tournaments. He doesn't think he can acquit himself well. You know, he's humble, but he's also like not there just to, for participation trophies. Yeah. He's like, normally I'm not, I wouldn't normally be here, but I decided to come here because he said it was for mental health. He mentioned that in one answer. And he also just said, like, I just wanted to, you know, practice with the other top guys and get some training in and see see what I can do. And those were very vibes. much his He was vibes, there for vibes. For, yeah, very Madison <laughs> Keys kind of vibes. And so he, I looked at, yeah, so his his Melbourne first week draw was very easy. I did get Barankis right, very proud of that. And then he got a walk over from Talon Greek Spore. And then he played Rusevori in the semis and then uh, Maxime Cressy in the in the final. So Cressy's playing well, but that's a pretty soft draw for a, for a title. Um, and yeah, but it gave him the sort of runway and eventually, you know, you start winning enough and you start believing. Um, and yeah, you do things like you beat Shapovalov in, in that match in the fifth set, uh, beating Berrettini. The Berrettini match, he came out really staggered Berrettini early. Matt was really on his back foot. Matt was weird early. for two sets. Yeah, that was, I was like, wow, I thought this match would be good. I feel stupid for thinking this match would be good. It was that yeah. kind of bad. And then Matt made it, Matt won the third and then Rafa won the fourth. And then, yeah, and then in the final, like it was a blow. I people should not oversee like how much of a blowout this match was early. This was like yeah. old man getting toyed around with by this Russian troll. I texted troll. you guys like after yeah. the first set. I was like, Medvedev is going to make Rafa look like an old man. Like that's was, just that first set was clinical. To use a reference from before our times, it was very Connor's Rosewall. Oh my! Which is like the seventy-four yeah. Wimbledon final, where it was like. Gentleman Ken Rosewall out here faces 40 years old having its great chance of playing his little knockabout <laughs> tennis and, and and against him is some 
young punk was <laughs> the phrase I always <laughs> used back then. And Connor has just dragged Rosewell. It was like one, one and four at Wimbledon. It was like one of the biggest blowouts ever. And very much this like lovely, stately old, you know, Australian guy just getting just torn to pieces by this tiger across the net. And yeah. it kind of was those vibes early. And we I had seen in 2019, the all in Open final just getting wrecked by Djokovic. Like we yeah. have seen him yeah. get there. And this happens with other big three guys too, like Djokovic 2020, a French Open final got wrecked by Nadal. Federer, you know, got recommended all in that uh, French Open final in, in 08. Yeah. Like these things can happen even to big players. And it was looking that way. And Rafa really was just like junking and kitchen sinking and hitting lots of drop shots. And then Medvedev, like, Medvedev won, once Medvedev won the second, it was like, okay, he survived the storm. He's going to win now. And then he got those three break points. And then, I'm not totally sure what happened. I do think Medvedev got in his own head a bit. I think it's part of it. I think the crowd got to Nevada for sure. We'll get to the crowd more. And, but he started hitting like lots of drop shots too. And just kind of like overcomplicating things and just losing focus a bit. And it could have been a physicality there. issue as well. I mean, by yeah. the fourth and fifth set, he was getting rubbed downs on the changeovers yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff. So it could have no, been in sure. the third set. He started sure. to, started to feel it. One of the weirdest stats about this final to me also is that this is only the second come from two sets down one of Nadal's career in any match. That was surprising to me. You just think of Nadal. It's counter narrative. Like, yeah, like fighter that he is, never count him out kind of guy. Like he would have done this more, but he also just beats people easily most of the time. <laughs> he doesn't usually have to get in these kind of holes. But yeah, it was remarkable seeing it unfold, seeing Nadal have his stumbles in the fifth set. Like like you said, you know, seen this before, 2012 final against Djokovic, 2017 final against Federer. Both of those times were earlier in sets that he was up breaks. It was up, well, 4-2 against Djokovic and then 3-1 against Federer. This was like he was up 5-3. And then yeah. got broken and then broke right back. Um, and yeah, it was a really, really cool, unexpected. It was epic. I, yeah, it was epic. I can't. It was epic. I, it was epic. The match wasn't always great quality, to be clear, but it was epic. This is one of the few times that I will allow the word epic to be used to describe a best of five match. Because it was. And it wasn't great all the time. This yeah. I think I was tweeting that during that as well. I was like, it doesn't happen. Like, and you don't have to retcon it. Like, just because it was an epic match by the end of it, you don't have to go back and be like, and it was an incredible level. It wasn't at times. It was, it was. Are their standards? De definitely not. Definitely not. And so like, and that's fine because it was riveting. It was as comfortable as I've ever had of a time watching a best of five match. Cause I was like, this is familiar. Um, <laughs> Actually, funny you say that. I was like in the stands in labor like kind of dying at some point. I thought it was going to end. I thought it was going to be over at three. And then directing to four and to fifth, I was like, I'm really dehydrated. Like, I, can't, I can't stay here. Like I'm like, like losing consciousness slowly in this match. I wouldn't take a break for a bit. You just never know like in those yeah, sort of yeah. things, you know, when you can leave and when you can, which is, you know, anyway. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was epic. It was, it was, it was well-learned. It was, yeah. And, and ultimately it results in two, two, like we said at the start, very feel good champions, great story. It's so weird how this turned, like if you were to say, you know, 17 days ago that this is the, the vibes that would have, um, we would remember the Australian Open for, I think people would have been like, really? Like, you know, just because of just the, the craziness of, of all the pre-stuff. But yeah, I mean, you get two great champions that everybody gets behind. Um, I was laughing today because I had turned on my PlayStation for the first time in like a month and a half since the Australian swing. And um, as anybody who knows, like you do that and you're just downloading updates for a while. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, before in December... I had downloaded and was playing November, December. I was playing AO Tennis 2, 
which okay. was like the Australian Open's tennis game. It's not very good. Don't recommend yeah, it. The only I've, reason I've I played it. It was not good. I played it because it was free. It was on PlayStation Now, so you could like play it free. So I was just kind of like futzing around with it. But you know who's on the cover of AO Tennis 2? Nadal. Ash Barty and Rafa Nadal. There you go. Yeah, I was going to take a photo of that and tweet it out and be like, oh, look at that. They like summoned it into 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 the world um but no, uh yeah he's also a very very popular guy in in melbourne as he is most everywhere and mm-hmm. he was you know prominent again i've been to this several times i don't want to get too much into this guy but like it's so weird just objectively that like novak is nowhere on tournament posters and rafa is everywhere and he one of us won once one of us won nine times and anyway but the fans were really really for rafa um let's get let's get to the fans now it's interesting being in the arena like, I guess cause one of those things, I think people have said this as they rewatch the match, they're more struck by the fans upon rewatch than they are live. Because live, you're kind of like focused on, I have not rewatched this match yet, but it, it is, they did pop up on YouTube. It's like, you want to watch the six hour video? I was like, I don't want to watch the six hour video. It's like six hours long. Um, five, sorry, 551, 551 on, on YouTube. The fans clearly got in Medvedev's head and they were very, you know, partisan with some, uh, you know, not nice things from Medvedev for sure, you know. Some things about it, I think, are things that he will need to just get over on some level. Like the between first and second serves thing, like that's only as important as you make it. It's my take on that. Like you should be able to adjust to there being potentially a noise between your first and second serves. That's like not. And this wasn't the first time that happened at no. a Grand Slam final because it was no. the U.S. Open final as well. Yeah. Not that no, the and, fans were against him. And and at the U.S. Open, I can't remember. Well, fans, fans were pro Novak in the U.S. Open finals. The one like. Oh, they were che- they were cheering for for, the, for. for the slam. For the slam. Yeah. OK. Yeah. But they were, che- they were, you know, doing their hooting and hollering between first and second serves there as well. Yeah. No. And so but I do think like the general tenor of it was just sort of like meaner in some ways there was like there was like a one like isolated like go back to russia shout at some point which was just sort of like here and then but then also this it wasn't all that method because when berrettini beat malfis in the quarterfinals he's doing his encore interview smiling just lighting up the room as matt does uh with jim curry whoever and there's sort of a lull and some guy in the crowd shouts rafa's gonna crush you oh my god (laughs) like what (laughs) But this, it was, but it was, it's a, maybe it's the sieve of it all. I don't know. But I think also this is a, a post-pandemic or mid-pandemic thing. In sports, people just kind of don't lost their manners and don't know how to act. That's my. Events. That that's kind of my players big, and one of my big included. takeaways. Yeah. Yes, no, but I think that that one thing that we have seen since fans have come back in sports, um, but we've seen it obviously in tennis a lot because of the way tennis is like which is that it's supposed to be a quiet sport Mm -hmm. so when there is noise you kind of notice it obviously a lot more than like if people are shouting at a football game or a baseball game or a basketball game you know but um i think that and i've said this before um i think even before before the australian open um but kind of you know people are been cooped up People yeah. are are dying for an opportunity to feel community, to feel a sense of 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 groupness, be amongst the people. Of being there. And I've not have been anywhere for years. Screaming, like yeah. acting a fool because we have not, I mean, people have been acting fools, but in different ways during the pandemic. Yeah. But people in this specific sporting or concert or, you know, these mass event kind of ways. It hasn't happened for two years. And so when you let a bunch of caged, 
It doesn't matter if they're particularly incredibly well-behaved normally, but they have been cooped up and you let them out. They're going to act like fools right now. There are no rules. Like, and we've been seeing it again. We've seen it at at music festivals. We've seen it at like people are acting stupid. Folk, and folks weren't storming the Capitol before this started. This is all I'm saying. There's a lot of lot of fool acting yeah. and people just like like mob mentality behavior of because mm-hmm. we've all been separated and isolated from each other for for mm-hmm. so much. And obviously in in, in Victoria, uh, definitely so. Yeah. So yeah. there is there's going to be that a little bit, you know, and then, you know, as the crowd kind of keeps building and building and building and you go into the final and it all started with the suing earlier which I don't think anybody saw coming that was super confusing for a while there and people blame Curious. why I don't know why you're blaming Curious. it was happening before Nick even took the court for his first round match because it was just happening was during just that Murray stupid. match like yeah. it's just dumb so it kind of got very... left in the first it got left in the first week largely outside of the Curious doubles matches I think I guess I guess yeah. I guess he was maybe the only one that once it was happening wasn't exactly quashing it you know um, but um, but yeah yeah, so so this is what's happening. So it's kind of awkward for Medvedev because he is as his rise um, has come. It's pretty much coincided with 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 you know this pandemic crowd behavior a little bit. Now that being said, it's not like he didn't have those issues before the pandemic. Uh, you know, U.S. Open and stuff like that. But he was, despite in that situation, being in the final against Rafa, and obviously Rafa's a big champion, whatever. He the New York crowd was charmed by him. It wasn't so. There's kind of and this he was thing the one that, making a comeback in that match too. He had the sort of in in the, just the scoreboard. He was the one who got down two sets and made. Yeah. So he won the fans by doing that. Ultimately, it's going to cut both ways. And here, just like at New York, just like, you know, here at the Australian Open, fans were rooting for the thing they wanted to see. And the thing that they wanted to see was a great doing something great. Mm -hmm. And that's just going to be the case almost anywhere. You know, when something like that is going to happen, like we see, like, obviously, you know, crowds at the U.S. Open when Serena is is, is on the verge of making history or doing something big, you know, they yeah. can. T- it has nothing to do with not liking you, Sam Stozer. It has nothing. It's not personal to you, Naomi Osaka. It's yeah. just it's pro Serena. So, again, I can't I don't I can't really opine so much about the AO crowd in that final because I was watching it ultimately until maybe like the last game on mute because <laughs> mm-hmm. I was watching other stuff but critical role we know we know i was i was catching up on my dungeons and dragons guys um <laughs> and it was great but yeah so i don't i don't really know to the specifics of it but yeah for medvedev you know it's unfortunate like i read his press conference and press that was conference a bummer was, but was interesting but i do i just get this i do think that it was heat of the moment i do think that it was no like he was he just felt, hurt he was just yeah, hurt by the whole no thing. that's what i mean like he but i think that he'll get over it i really do yeah, no, it was interesting to see because I remember, I, I think I tweeted, you know, while we were waiting for the trophy ceremony to start in labor after Nadal won, I was like, I have no idea what <laughs> what's about, about to say. happen. And, yeah. and he was, and he was in his way, very gracious in that moment and gave it all, you know, props and stuff. Didn't thank the crowd so conspicuously, but nor should he. Why? He doesn't need to, you don't need to do that. Um, if you don't feel it, don't say it. And yeah, but then in the press conference, he sits down, he gets asked an opening question by moderator Nicola, I think, and kind of somewhat ignores it and then says, like, I'm just going to, you know, Nicola says, well, he really ignored it. Nicola said, we're going to keep this short. <laughs> and Medvedev instead launches into this long monologue, which was sort of telling his life story in tennis, pretty much. Um, it had all sorts of like really like life flashing before his eyes kind of moments of like I remember the first time I saw John Hester he was so tall like these things they've got but that's what I mean like kind of reading through his monologue and everything I think he was still just in it 
Yeah, oh yeah, he was processing it he, and just feeling understandably like, so. I mean, and, and one of the interesting things he said it it was like he remembered hearing, and again, he's like a super thoughtful and like most people could not do this off the cuff of this sort of like honestly dramatic monologue. There's like stream of consciousness. It's not like he was pre-writing it. The only thing I could think of at all comparable, and this is not comparable, is one time it's after his whole controversy a few years ago when Tennis Sangren pre-wrote a sort of screed he read against the media before his press conference. Um, this was this was not that on any level. It was not angry per se. And one of the things Timani said, which I loved afterwards, we were leaving the room, is that Medvedev said that he loves talking to the media. He doesn't like the fans. What athlete says that? I love the media. The fans I can't deal with. That was funny. No, no one ever says that. No one ever says that. So, but uh, but Medvedev said in, in the thing that like, he was sort of told and maybe sort of conned some way by the whole, he bought into the next gen marketing, which he was a part of that first next gen generation. I thought that was an interesting observation though. His Where whole thing like, about people, how- people were, people were like, we want to see the young guys come and challenge the, the old guys, the big three. And then I started doing that and no one wanted it. <laughs> no one wanted him there. And that's sort of, and I will say Medvedev got unlucky. Although I don't remember him. I don't remember the crowd so much of the 2021 Australian Open final. Uh, where he got beat pretty soundly. I don't honestly remember what the crowd was doing there in particular. It was kind of half full. I don't remember the crowd being a big part of that story, except for them booing vaccines during the speech, um, is that he got the misfortune of playing Djokovic in New York the one time the crowd really wanted Djokovic to win. True. That was anomalous. Most of the times you play Djokovic, you're not getting a big, big crowd support against you. Um, but yeah, like he just seemed sort of, you know, you know, just, yeah, like hurt by not, not resonating. And those, you know, hopefully he'll have times... And he's right that, you know, people have really, in, in recent tennis, they don't cheer for the underdog so much. They cheer for the guy they've heard of in this minute, whether it's Serena or the big three, you know, these people who are going for history and familiar names and who are sympathetic in their ways. Like I found yeah. myself, honestly, you know, you've had this sort of journey, I know with Federer for sure, during your time watching this sport, like Nadal to me is a much more interesting, much yeah. more sympathetic character at this point in his career than he was when he was just winning, you know, his eighth out of 55 French Opens or whatever he's up to now. Like he's much more, he's a very compelling person in this way. And I, you know, personally, it's like a month with, month with him, you know, cause he was in Melbourne the whole time. Like, yeah, he was just a very engaging, per, easy person to latch onto. Nothing about Medvedev. No, it, and, that's the thing is that it's not, it's, it's having like everyone always cheers from Monfils in those matches. Right. Everyone always cheers from Monfils. This is the thing. It's like, it's like the, this is what, if anything, if you're Medvedev and what I hope that with time he understands is that this love that these great champions get every time they walk on the court pretty much has been earned by over 15 years of service. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like you, you're right, Daniil, you don't get to just walk onto the court and become a fan favorite when you're going up against the golden generation of men's tennis that has highly factionalized fans. And then in addition to that, you know, the, the monolith of Fidal is its own thing as well. And so, you know, and then in the midst of it, trying to come in and be the guy, I mean, look, he's good buddies with Novak. Novak can tell him what it's like to be the disruptor and what it's like to go in and be like, be the guy that nobody, some people want to go in to disrupt, you know, like I was definitely like of the big three, like, like pro Novak of the three very, you know, early on when he was just out there, mm -hmm. just like not a care in the world and disrupting the Fadal, you know, duopoly. Um, mm -hmm. That was really fun. But then once you become one of the greats shoulder to shoulder, 
you know, the metrics of things change a little bit. And now somebody else is coming in and being the disruptor. And it's going to take you time to to earn that. But look, look at what it looks like when you earn it. Look at what you get to bank with you. Like yeah. you get to bring 10,000 people with you on the court every time that you take the court. And I'm not saying Medvedev is ever going to match that, but he's definitely head of the class of 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 the next gen. You know, he's the tip of the spear. Fans like Medvedev. I think fans large. like Medvedev. And this, yeah. this, is, this is the thing also, this is also, because pe- a lot of people said one of the main reactions to this press conference was sort of like, you reap what you sow, you know, saying that he had done things to antagonize fans. Again, I don't buy that because I don't totally buy that. This is the aforementioned um, person saying, <laughs> shouting at Baratini, the Rafa is going to crush him. Completely uncalled for in this moment. Yeah. This, you know, there's just people out there, you know, having thoughts, shouting things. This is the thing. I'm setting aside that stuff. I'm that talking stuff about fandom writ, writ large. That said, it's not like Medvedev is, you know, going out there calling people idiots, saying they have low IQs, all sorts of stuff. Cats, um, you know, he has his well, moments. That, yeah, <laughs> I would, uh, small cat, the small cat moment was objectively hilarious. <laughs> um, not so much the moment of saying it, and it, obviously it's not great to say whatever, but people trying to figure, the <laughs> tennis Twitter the trying cracking. to figure out what happened there was was remarkable. It was, it was, a, it was surreal. It was a surreal moment. Anyway, Medvedev, um, yeah, like he, he is abrasive at times for sure then wants to get embraced. And that doesn't always come easily. There are some people who will pay attention to that. Most people won't. Some people will. But yeah, but he, you know, he certainly had crowd support, you know, against, I don't know, Cressy and whoever he played in the quarter, he played in the quarters. Felix, yeah, he had good crowd support against Felix. There was, the crowd was totally with him in that comeback. And since the there's a bunch of Greeks there uh, in, in Melbourne, so they're probably louder for most of the match than uh, he was. Uh, but yeah, but Medvedev, yeah, I, like I said, I understand the, the heart and disappointment. I appreciated his honesty with it, his, articulate journey he took us on in the press it was it well was, and, uh again something i was just, as i was leaving that night, i was like wow netflix really missed all this huh mm. <laughs> hate that for them <laughs> well i mean i think that ultimately i think that one thing that medvedev has proven throughout his career is he is and this is a little bit of where I found a little bit of a disconnect between what he was saying and I guess my, what my experience with Daniil has been. And I mean, I love Daniil. Like I'm, I'm a total, I mean, I, I want him to win everything. Like mm-hmm. it's not, he's, he's, he's my guy of, of that, of that whole crew. But um, I think that the disconnect that I saw or I felt was this idea that like, oh, the kid inside died and I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do it for me now. And I'm like, since when have you not been doing it for you? Like, that was kind of your whole point is that also, you do it for you. Is you. Yeah. You. Like, I I just, I mean, you're the guy that dead fished as your, as your celly. You're the guy who antagonizes the crowd and then apologizes for it later. And like, you're the guy who like, you know, tries to, you know, yells at Sitsapas or does this and that and antagonizes and trolls all the time. He is constantly trolling. Like y- this idea that somehow he was like doing it for the fans, but now I'm going to just do it for me. I was like, that's not my read on you. Now, if you want to go ahead and be like, look, Look, I'm just going to embrace my villainy. Love that. Do that. Like, I have no problem with that whatsoever. That's what I've been effectively begging Novak to do for, you know, a decade is just embrace your villainy. Just, it's okay. I just don't know if that's how doable that is in actuality. Like, that's just exhausting for a person. It's probably everyone, exhausting. Every, everyone wants to be liked on some level, whether they say it or not. But the thing is that if he embraces his villainy, he will be liked, like, because he's effectively yeah. already done it. He's got one foot in, you know, like. He's an anti-hero already. Yeah, somebody somebody said it on the Twitter spaces of like they were really scared 
with like the um the, his press conference and everything they're like i really hope this isn't his joker moment <laughs> like his 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 superhero villain like origin story where kind he of just goes, villain origin story, a little yeah. bit a little bit taxi driver a little bit like you know like like i this is the moment where it break i break bad you know like you know maybe i don't know we'll see um, I still just don't, I don't know. I just still think ultimately he still, he still remains pure to himself, which is a complicated multi-layered guy who can have conflicting emotions at the same time. And in the same way, like when you're like kind of being a fan or whatever, it's a similar thing. Like he's going to do stuff where you're just like, God damn it, Daniil, really? Are we doing this? Because and then it. And then he's going to be completely charming about it later. And you'd be like, I like you. Like, that's just, but both of those things are true. He is that guy down under who is a troll, who who is a dick. Like, he yeah. he is that guy, but he is also the other guy. And I just don't think that, like, I have a hard time believing that this moment is going to break him bad. I think that he's going to have, he's going to be in his feels for a while and like, whatever. But ultimately, he's still, He's still just going to be him. And it's still just going to be the complicated Daniil that we've always gotten. That's my sense. That's my takeaway. We'll see. Let's I talk, hope. Let, let's talk a bit about the semifinal. Um, Medvedev Sitsipas, which was a <laughs> goofy, goofy time. Wild match. Ava Azraki undercover <laughs> in the tunnel. Still <laughs> an all-time moment. When she, when she slides she down. Back again. <laughs> Kills me. It's comedic. It's just like she slides against the wall, like the to hide behind. In this moment, of her being like, it's so yo, good. Yo, yo, and hiding. It's it's <laughs> really really funny. So Medvedev, I mean, you're right. Medvedev was kind of going nuts in this match, screaming at the umpire, you know, saying, you know, listen. You if know, you haven't seen anything. the Christy on Medvedev uh, Olivia Coleman mashup, do look it up. It's phenomenal work. Phenomenal work. <laughs> That's not as hard to search. So why don't you share that with folks? It's just um, it's, it's on her. It's on her Twitter. Just go to Christy's Twitter. Twitter. I've, okay. Yeah. I've All right. Yeah. It. Oh yeah. Her. Yeah. She's not a yeah. part. Of it. Right. 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 I thought yeah. Christy was one of the clips too. The way you were saying it. No. 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 She um, clipped together his look at me. Look at me. Look at me, me. With Olivia Coleman in, in the, the favorite. favorite. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at me. Look at me. How don't look, look at me. me. <laughs> such a such a such a good Oscar winner there. My God. Um, oh, queen. So anyway, Medvedev in this match is playing Tsitsipas. Losing honestly felt like he was sort of just like again kind of trolling a bit. Mephed always feels I always feel like Mephedev, which is really was my feeling during the Felix match, which was he's always was so playing confusing. with his food. Right. He's always just like, I'm better, I'm in control. Ultimately, let's see how much I want to let you hang, which is why it was like weird that he was doing that against Felix and then kind of like lost grip a bit and had to actually kind of like fight to get it back. But he's just like so good and so much better than everybody. I you know, in some ways with an adult too, in the first half of that match for sure, he had that feeling as well. Well, has a feeling as well, obviously. Um, on, on the, I guess we've kind of talked about the most negative moments in this match and him just being angry. And you're right, there's, there is, both things can be true. He can be incredibly charming, articulate, and likable, and also just be a dick and go too far and cross the line and have moments that are cringy. And yeah. then also it'd be weird how fast you can flip from one to the other. Those are yeah. all things you can keep like, I don't know about all this. But anyway, Sitsipas in this match. Sitsipas, by the way, who did not have any lengthy bathroom breaks in this tournament. Funny how that works get coach a coaching violation for the third time it, or he gets like or Medvedev wants him to he's already got this twice before in this tournament fines for coaching we know he gets it all the time his father is constantly talking constantly coaching they set up this thing no one's ever seen before that i can aware of sending a 
specially picked operative in Greek speaking, Ava Azraki, who'd already worked, by the way, the Berrettini doll final. She was like, she had clocked in her hours. They brought her out of the lounge, out of, you know, whatever she was doing and, and had her go literally under cover of tunnel <laughs> under the Tsitsipas camp to listen and then spot coaching the cane. And Tsitsipas just has, one of the things that's like bothering about Tsitsipas in the last like six months, it's just sort of his like defiance about the rule breaking. He's kind of doubling down. Yeah, on it's, it's very the, weird. Whether it's the weird whether, whether it's the bathroom breaks, whether it was the vaccines, honestly, he was the same way about. Um, and whether it's this, it's just it's it's un unappealing, unattractive behavior. Just the way he does it, just like it's off putting. Just like what? Why are you? Why are it's you? It's just not necessary. It's just and, and, all not and again, necessary. Again, like and when he was sort of saying, um, so we'll get to his part. Then we kind of get to the sport part, but like. When he's saying like, oh, me and my dad can't help it. Like he's always just talking. Like, no, you can also like tell him to stop or tell him to not be at your matches. We saw Mary Bartoli do it to Walter. Yes, we've seen people. Yeah, people, if you're going to, if your coach is going to be a problem, just take care of the problem and be an adult about it. And that's not something Sitzfaust is doing. He said said he'd been victimized, used the word victim by umpires for calling for this rule breaking. And as we saw from, you know, we mentioned this match a few times. It is obviously scarring for all of us. The Serena and Osaka match, uh, US Open, it does not matter if the player effectively understands and receives the communication from the signals. The This is a penalty that's given as a co-violation to the player, but it's a penalty for the coach and the coach's yep. behavior. If you're doing something that's coaching signaling, which both with Mortogli was at that time, and Mortogli was not at this tournament, um, and then which Apostle sits upon this many times, um, yes, you should get called whether or not Steph is completely in the clouds and paying attention or not. That's not really relevant. That's not a defense. And so... Yes, they have to fix that. On a certain level, if you're a serial offender, yes, I think you should get, you know, banned from matches, from being courtside at matches. Maybe not decredentialed, as some people suggest that. Maybe, like, allowed on the ground, just not at matches. Who knows? But, like, you can't be a real sport and have somebody sitting there breaking the same rule over and over again and not have it be somehow, like, aggressive, premeditated. You know how, like, with, again, I keep mentioning her, obsessed, uh, Osaka, French Open, how when she got her co-violation for skipping a, a press conference, it was like aggravated first degree press conference skipping. It was like right. escalated to a major offense. Like you got to do that with Sitsipasas at some point in the coaching. Like it's happening so repeatedly and so remorselessly that like just crack down or like, what are you doing? It makes, it looks Bush league for them to keep getting away with this and for the sport to, to let them keep doing this. And, and, and in that sense, I understand Medvedev's anger for sure. Cause he knows how it works. It's not the first time we've seen a player, you know, be serially coached by a coach. We've seen this with, Justin Anderson and Carlos Rodriguez. We've seen this with a few other people. Um, Tony Nadal, I think, has been accused of this at various points, like of of coaching. And yeah, but this is such a flagrant example of it. And the lack of any sort of reflection or remorse from Tsitsipas makes it more frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough because you know if you're going to have rules, but then the first of all enforcement of those rules. I mean, again, this required for us to have a Greek umpire yes. on the grounds right next on a to the semifinal. Box. Like, this isn't an instance where this is like first round and there's a bunch of umpires just running around and chilling out in the break room. There's a limited number of umpires at this point that are working and they just happen to have Ava on and she happened to be, I assume, on site. I hope to goodness they didn't pull her out of supper club and like, you know, stick her (laughs) in a car and race her down to to Melbourne Park. But, um, you know, it took a very, very 
perfect storm of circumstances to even be able to enforce the rule, which then makes you wonder if it's, first of all, if you cannot uniformly enforce it, which is obviously the argument that has been made since the, the U.S. Open final uh, with, with Serena and Naomi, that if you cannot uniformly enforce it, if every coach is looking at that being like, we all do that, well, then you have an issue already with the rule in and of itself and, and the, 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 the just the the validity of the rule, because if you can't enforce it uniformly, what's the point? Secondly, if the punishment upon enforcement is not actually a deterrent, then what are you doing? Like at that point, that's two layers of swing and a miss that makes you then question the ultimate rule. Now, again, I understand the traditionalists and blah, 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 blah. I'm completely agnostic with respect to being whether coaching should be allowed or not. Obviously, it's allowed on the WTA tour, like, you know, within certain parameters because of COVID. Um, but um, in terms of like, you can only coach when the players are on your do, side. I, people, people might not know how this rule has changed. So we don't have the on-court coaching timeouts anymore. WTA. Sure. So, so how this, do, what is the rule now? Yeah. So just for the evol- just to give context to the evolution of the, co- the coaching rule on the WTA tour was that 2020... Coaching was official. Well, was piloted to be officially legal from the stands, uh, starting with the Dubai tournament. That was where it was a, the first time that it was allowed. And what it was was basically you can coach from the stands. You can yell out pretty much whatever you want, so long as it is not disruptive. So in other words, you can't be yelling like "hit to her backhand." It's absolute crap, you know, to kind of rattle the other player, you know, sort Certainly of. Certainly not in English. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> so um, you can say stuff, but the player also has to be on your side of the court when that coaching happens. In other words, again, when it comes to disruption and stuff, you can't be yelling from one end of the court to the other end of the court, you know, to, to and stuff like that. Then obviously, COVID hits. And at the time when this the rule was in place for Dubai, we also, in addition to that, had on court coaching allowed. So basically, coaching was effectively legal on all all from the stands in those parameters and that. Then COVID happens. Obviously, on court coaching is discontinued because of 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 COVID, and then that rule remains, which is that you can coach from your side of the court, um, but you you also can't conference. So mm-hmm. a player can't come over and like have a chat. Like I you think can't, that, you that can't happened. Have, you can't have a chat during changeovers like you used to. You can't have chats during changeovers either. It's kind of just in mm. when they're on the same side of the court, like whatever. I suppose if like you're sitting behind them and you're yelling stuff during changeovers, it's fine. But they can't like have like a, they can't like, for example, forego sitting at the chair to go talk to you. Remember when they trialed this at the U.S. Open qualies? Where players could like go to the corner. Go to their corner. Yeah, it was very yeah. boxing. Yeah, it was very boxing, which is fun. It's a whole different thing. But anyways, traditionalists will argue against it. Solo, mano y mano, et cetera, et cetera. We can have that discussion. That's fine if that's how you feel. Great. But then ultimately, if that's what you feel is that coaching has to be prohibited, then you need to have better enforcement mechanisms and you have to have deterrence that 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 stop it that that curb it it can't just be well i'm a multimillionaire tennis player who's making you know seven hundred thousand dollars playing a uh or whatever is the prize money five hundred thousand six hundred thousand dollars for a semi and so i don't really care about ten thousand dollars i'll yell what i want at my kid that doesn't work it, it just can't you know yeah. so that's why like on espn like darren cahill had the suggestion that coaching violations should be accumulative just like basically yellow cards turn into red cards in football. So if you get one, it get, that violation isn't carried over to the next one. If you get another one, then you, yeah, you get, maybe not decredentialed as far as you say, but like you don't get to be badged as a coach. You don't get to sit in the box, whatever it is. You should be red, red carding from a match. I mean, honestly, if you get your second sure. coaching violation of the tournament, have someone take him out of the Yeah, match. you should be able to, th- you, yeah, something like that, where there is an actual, um, 
deterrent. And honestly, maybe that's even preferred because one of the things about fines that we always have to be very realistic about is that like those fines apply flatly across the board and you can't be fining a first round player $50,000 for a coaching violation. Right. If, if it's you're trying to the season. Yeah. Right. It, 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 you know, if, if $50,000 might not be anything to Stefano Sitsipas, but which, it's a lot to somebody else. So which is why I do think they should have sort of the look into the First of all, I think enforcement is good. I said, I made this point several times during the pandemic, if all of these out of work line judges who you're not using to call lines, train them. If you care about coaching as a rule, because currently you do on the books. So if you care about it as a rule, you have it as a rule, act at the rule. And I think it's really, really hard for a chair umpire to effectively make a coaching violation call from the chair in a often a language that's not a language they speak from you know opposite side of the stadium. Sometimes the coaches are even like behind them or something. On too. a show like, court in a big match at a in slam. a loud match. Yeah, no, completely. Like you should you should have help. It's it's more than one official can be used for this. And like you said, you have you have the manpower for this theoretically if you want to use it. Have coaching monitors, and maybe that feels a little bit you know uh, you know stiflingly chaperoning on some level and coaches will probably be annoyed they have like a minder but also like just if you care about this rule and i do i personally do skew towards liking the mono mono of it but i understand either side of it and i understand people being just not caring about it but i want consistency on it so now that you have coaching being illegal act like it and yeah i just think that sitsipas in his the team sitsipas and their brazenness of this rule like deserves like it, it should be met with, you know, reasonable or, you know, commensurate forceful action, which is why I like they, they mobilized Ava. That was crazy. And again, comical, the physical comedy this moment of Ava jumping out of the, of the hall and raising <laughs> her hands to signal uh, campus stall to, uh, to get a coaching. Violation. I would love to know what she heard. Yeah. I mean, but that's the thing, like, you know, if he, if she just heard like step in on return or something that was tactical that he can't say, like she would know all those terms right away. And it would take, you know, a linguistically suited coach in various cases to be able to do this. Um, and so maybe you have different officials who are doing it. And maybe and it's I, only maybe it's only for show courts in the second week or something too. Maybe you have limited resources. You can't do it on every single match, but do it where you can because it's it's farcical to have uh, it, people getting away with it like this. It's way less JV to have a chaperone in the box than to have the, the, yeah, the farcical nature of like yeah. somebody's dad yelling coaching instructions in, in a Grand Slam semifinal, like, yep. and and getting away with it because no yep. one speaks Greek. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit tough one there, but, um, but yeah, I mean, look, if, for all we know, Stefano Sitsipas's like greatest legacy will be how he changed the rules of the game <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> it was fun. I mean, People like, we're going to be was... like, oh, the Sitsipas rule, which one? <laughs> Bathroom breaks or coaching? <laughs> very, very Sean Avery of him. Now there's this like, um, yeah, it, <laughs> it was funny how like when the rules getting introduced, people during this uh, this swing, the Australian swing, so many players were making Sitsipas jokes. Like Tiafa was like, ah, Stefano, Scott's here, speed up the bathroom, and then like Brof is something about it in press. He was like, you know, well we have these rules now. Well, I wasn't on tour, but I heard Sitsipas was doing this. It's like, it's it's funny. And again, this I love the like, idea well, of Rafa learning from it from a group chat. Oh yeah, Rob is on some group chats. Yeah, the the whole the the it's unfortunate, and I hope that Sitsipas just reels it in on some level because I do think that he's. It's been, just weird again, because he's so built this, to be been, that been, to be the guy, been, a star, he's been on the streak of just like being like of being honestly like, yeah, just not taking these petulant L's. Yeah, I don't I don't get it, and it's just, it wasn't who he 
presented as before. I've heard people people point to, and I don't know if it's true or not, the French Open final that he lost at some sort of turning point in his brain that something click or broke or whatever you want to say or snap in. His Maybe brain. that was his Medvedev moment of yeah, like, I'm doing Joker it for moment. me now. Yeah. I'm doing it for me. And, and yeah, I don't know. he did seem to stop the, 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 there was no infamous bathroom breaks at this tournament for him. The only one that was at all was, you know, people joking about Barbara Krejcikova breaking her necklace. Um, that's her reason for taking a long time in the bathroom. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's the whole, that's the whole bus thing. I hope that he, yeah, I hope that the tour figures this out and gets uh, coaching because I would like to be able to just have him be, because great stuff is great. And I want him to be less problematic. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, like, it's it's, it's just so weird the last 12 months for Sitsipas because, like, he was really seemingly, seeming to emerge kind of along with, you know, like, Dominic team, you know, as, like, the unproblematic like next gen guy that everybody can like and it's not you know like because you know liking liking Medvedev is complicated liking some of the others is complicated um you know uh, but it felt like him, the both of them and like Felix and like Francis and you know but Matt. yeah Matt yeah Matt Matt thus emerged to kind Matt's of like think Matt's, Matt's still there but he he kind of like took that role but like with Steph it was just like unnecessary stuff like you know like it was like you didn't have to say these things and word them the way that you worded them and you would have been fine. But it's just weird now. Everyone's least favorite parlor game with the Australian Open is ranking the ATP top four from order of most to least problematic. You listeners can try it at home. See what your results are. Share them with us. <laughs> it's a complicated list. No comment. Not that, we're, not that we're conflating anything about them because they're all very different from each other um, in meaningful ways. Uh, Matt briefly just mentioned him. He was a semifinalist. Um, he had, he's the one who I was, when I was watching all these Netflix clues traping, cruise ship around, I was like, they're going to like Matt. I feel like Matt's going to be a good TV. Matt's going to be like, he's, he's, you know, coming to the guy's little boss contract. He's a little more dressed up. He's kind of leaning into the fashion side. He's at San Remo, which is the Europe, which is the Eurovision selection show. I don't think that's the show. stuff that Netflix is going for though. You don't, like you I don't get think, that. No, you don't think I he's mean, be the pretty boy on camera. Oh, he'll be that. That's not the question. But that doesn't that I don't think that that is what that show is looking for. Okay. What do you think what do you think they're going to use Matt for then? Well, they might they I'm just saying that like in terms of mining, if I'm Netflix, especially off of everything that I've heard about what drives to survive is and like everything, like they want drama, they want spit, they want fire, they want controversy, they want dark moments. They want all of that. And I just feel like Matt's just like He's living yeah, he's his best dark. life, man. Like he, he he's got he's got you know, and which is what I want for him. Trust me, I don't, I don't want. I mean, so they'll have their, you know, they'll have that Matt, and that's great. But like, if they were able to get like all of the backstory with the Sitsipas stuff and and his dad and you know the coaching stuff, if they're able to get you know, um, you know, Sabalenka serving woes and dealing with all of that, yeah. you know, like that is more, I think, the meat that will make that show interesting, not like, you know, 30 minutes of like Matteo Berrettini is really good at tennis, very likable. And isn't that great for tennis? That's not I don't think that that's the brand okay. of what they're trying to produce. I could be wrong if that's the brand of what they're trying to do produce. I'm not sure that the show is going to deliver what people want it to. Um, if but if yeah. you want the if you want the drama, Sitsipas is the drama. So on that on this in this in the men's draw, that's right. And like, we have Curious too, who's also you know in doubles right. and stuff and picking fights with Croatian fitness trainers or something after matches. Uh, Maybe they knows? got footage. Who knows? Uh, 
I don't, if, I don't know if it was what we saw in the in security camera footage, but it really wasn't very interesting looking visually. Um, in oh, you moment. got the security cam on it? Well, no, they, they were showing parts of it. I couldn't tell if it was like the actual argument or like them debriefing afterwards. There was clips uh, from the security cams that were shown on Channel 9 or, or, or even just host broadcaster of like, of um, yeah, just like them sort of kibbutzing into the hallway of, of and sort of clip, maybe something had just happened. It wasn't clear. Anyway, I was not honestly that interested in it. But that is that is the Australian Open 2022. Uh, good tournament. Yeah, like you said, started in a weird place, but ended really likably and good for... Which I think is what people were desperate for. That was my sense off of my, like, one of my big takeaways of my six-hour space stream was just that, like, I think that people really, after a year of weirdness within the sport, whether on court or off, that there was this desire to have a result or have a tournament where it was like feel good and it was palate cleansing. And one of the things that was really interesting that I heard from quite a few of the people on on the spaces was a lot of people kind of coming on and saying, look, I struggled to love this sport last year yeah, and or and the year before. And I fell out of love with it. And I went and filled my time with other things it was just nonsense and blah 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 and and this was this made me love it again and that was really really heartening to hear and i heard it over and over and over again from a lot of different yeah. people all over the globe especially and, the men's men's side yeah and it, and it wasn't even um fandom based yeah. like granted i don't think a lot of novak fans were calling into my spaces so like i cannot articulate what they're feeling so but at least like a lot of the people that were calling in it they were talking about tennis in general like not just necessarily because rafa won i love the sport again and right. you know or because of xyz it was just like that was so cool it was great to see you know gael have a great tournament it was yes. great to see maddie back on the board it was great to see anisimova it was great to see like um, naomi be in a good headspace and play good matches yeah. you know she lost by a point but like nobody was feeling you know and she had good perspective on it people were loving Iga like being kind of the mat of the WTA tour of like continually making these runs and you're like oh okay like you know like th there's fun, a lot fun, to be said about that from Matt stat because you were you're talking about Berrettini there Berrettini is the first player born in the 90s of the ATP guys to have made the quarters or better at all four slams now hey which is something that, for that Sitsipas hasn't done, Medvedev hasn't done, Zverev hasn't done. And so it's sort of a testament to, to Berrettini, who's been, again, kind of under the radar, wasn't one of the hyped juniors and kind of building his own alternate path. Yep. To kind we of love like to see catching it. up and passing, yeah. You know, we love to see it. You know, Alizé Cornet doing oh, her great. thing, obviously. Um, you know, there was just a lot where every single day you felt like something like really, really cool was happening. And, you know, and this was an event where, like I've said it, uh, I think before and I think that everybody kind of agrees and was kind of shocked by it on some level was like how much like momentum the men's tournament had in that second week like people were really really into it like I say this from people who generally tend to be WTA fans yeah. and you know WTA fans tend generally tend to like you know you're always kind of like caping for the WTA because you're trying to create yeah. space for the WTA and make people respect it I think all of us like going into that final weekend especially once everything had been over it was like what a great tournament the guys had like the, I like more of I, that please that was great said, like it was I just feel good the, the whole time the quarters I think it was at the mm. quarters and obviously people can look at results and figure out what I mean here but at the quarters like it was like any of these eight guys first of all with the exception of Mebeda who obviously was a favorite all along would be like a really interesting yeah likable compelling popular winner 
obviously yeah. we got probably the most popular winner of all of them in at all possible but like just some good sort of stories and eggs in there and like yeah like it was easier an easier sport to like in some ways uh in this version of it yeah no so you, you hope that that momentum continues you know through through february and then into the the sunshine double and you know, we kind of continue to tap into that because I think that what was so great about the Australian Open and, and you can include like the the WTA and ATP tournaments before the Australian Open is that it just put a lot of pieces on the board in surprising combinations. Like if you think of a chessboard, you know, that that made you excited to see how it all plays out over the next, you know, seven to eight months. Um including including pieces that were not on the board but that's also very very significant as well um so yeah like i definitely leave the australian open like far more curious than i guess i maybe thought that i would which is weird because our number one one like ultimately ash barty and rafa nadal walked away with like you know grand slam grand slams or major titles and and so that on paper as we were mentioning before doesn't seem like all that thought-provoking on paper to a casual but Party, certainly. Way, I, yeah but in the way that they did it and the way that it happened and what they showed in each of their individual runs it does open up a lot of questions right like it, it does open up like oh my gosh like we really do have a dominant number one can people catch up with her when will she take the court again like and then on top of that all the you know anisa mova's back on the board like keys collins like <laughs> pagula's playing well you know it's good it's good times can't be mad at it not mad at all. Not mad at this episode. Any other sort of uh, assorted other Australian thoughts before we wrap up here on other things? You mentioned Cornet. Cornet was great. Definitely sort of best supporting actress of the tournament. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just great She's, ride. She's Susan Lucci that she finally got it. Yeah. Oh, very, <laughs> very Susan Lucci. Exactly. Um, I'm trying to think of other. You mentioned there's a bunch of first week stories. I know I mean, some mentioned. I think that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. Good turn for Iga. Yeah. I think we covered base as well here. Yeah, no, I, I think that and, and especially for the guys, I think that like, like, that was the best match I've definitely seen Felix play like the mo the first time oh, that yeah. I've been like, really, really impressed. Um, sorry, but that's just my truth. Um, and, uh, and obviously, Gael, you know, good stuff. So yeah, a lot of pieces on that board for the guys. So I'm curious how, how that plays out as well. Definitely. So thank you guys for tuning in to NCR and listening to the show. Uh, this is our first episode of the month of February. So we have more people to thank than usual, which is always a treat because we just are so full of thanks to you guys for supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining, which you can do there. And we want to thank some people by name who are our on tour level back, which we think the first episode of every month. And they are Fatima S, Matt Mitchell, Rachmere E, Greg Rails, Olivia Haynes, Jeff Augustin, Deepak Mokshagundam, Ido Pollock, Nick, Laura Vergani, Aluko Hope, David Ebershoff, Kathleen Sharkey, Stephen Tidings, Daniel Hartzell, Horatio Silva, Joseph Har, Reginald Bazile, Misa Miyagawa, Annie Kim, JB Wogan, Jillian Dobson, Andrew, The Body Serve Podcast, Andrew Eccles, Ninja Steph, Joy Katz, Greer Millard, Bridget Robinson, Ava Marshalkova, Harish, Elise Panyish, Jeremy Blackstock, Dermot Harkin, and Lori Porter. And we also thank our Slam Champ Factor, thank every episode, who are Susanna W., Sean Mulroy, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Jean Simeon, James Hindle, Antonio Maycumber, Anna Valinder, Timothy Liu, and Ashley Keel. And our two go backers, Pam Shriver and J O D. Pam, Pam was also hosting some uh, some spaces. Yeah, I was I was sleeping, recovering from the women's final, and like about 
like 7.30, I got a call from Pam being like, how do you do that thing? I want to do one. I'm like, okay, I'll help you. So I co-hosted with her. She was unreal. Like, so the good. The whole thing made me think, like, I don't think that, like, internet radio is the thing that it, I don't know how much it was ever really a thing, honestly. It existed, but I don't think it was ever, like, had a moment. But, like, there's such a great space for it in tennis. Because, like, hearing people who, like, your your spaces were so good at this. And I would love to do like maybe some NCR, you know, more yeah, branded spaces sure. officially now that I'm on a more normal stage. So I'm usually like checking in while I'm walking to the tennis guys, whatever, during these things. Um, but like, it's just people, and this is how it feels like to be around tennis people in person. Like yeah. you get, you're like member of like a sort of like weird, obscure tribe who's finally around someone else who speaks your language that you never get to use in society normally. And now there's moments you can have that and open up. And yeah, it's like a roll of the dice in a lot of ways, clicking on people's names, not knowing who they are all the time. And be like, I hope this is a person that's crazy. And, and at least what I heard, it was all, all pretty good. Like it was, yeah. it was um, yeah, just people were really excited to talk about tennis and have this moment and, and the vocal, you know, it does just feel like really like nice, like talk radio. And you had, you were so good at it, Courtney. Like you were so, so good at it. You were. Now, I think that what I really liked about it, and I'm going to try and do a weekly one um, just to, and, and what I liked about it was like, there was a little bit of hesitation on my part, like when I first did it, because mainly I was doing it just to like learn the technology because I was just curious like what it was. Um, but then also I was kind of like, look, I am on radio. I do hits on BBC. I host two podcasts. Like, no one needs to hear my freaking opinions about tennis. Like nobody cares. Nobody cares at that point to like listen to me. But what I really liked about the space is that it wasn't, it didn't have to be that. Like that no. I could just sit there and just pass the mic around the world. And it was really and you moving. Knew people, and it gave like different flavors. You'd be like, here's five minutes. This, I remember when I was listening, to, walking to open, listen to this part specifically. Like here's 10 minutes with Barbini. Yeah. You know, like, and just had to be like a very Barbini moment. Yeah. And here's Pam and here's whoever else. And like seeing different people, some of you, you know, some of you don't know, some of you kind of know, like, oh, I've seen that name in my, my followers and my mentions column for, or, you know, notifications column for years and putting a voice to that and, and hearing people, you know, and their stories and their perspectives, especially with the Australian Open, like it was cool. There was somebody who was like, again, this isn't that one of my walks to side member listening to this person who's like, I'm in Hawaii, but I live in the Yukon. And like, yeah. I'm following this. And just like seeing like, as you're maybe I had hit different because I was on the ground, but like as I'm sort of doing this like very local thing, walking from the CBD to the tennis every day, knowing that like the world was watching and caring and this like all meant stuff to people. That's was, the thing. Was cool. That was the thing. Like the ones that I hosted before, like the early ones where because I didn't know if I could like trust the speaker, like random speakers as much. So I was inviting mostly my friends. So yeah. it was like kind of like a bunch of us. It was like how we would do like sit around at the bar and just like talk to each other. But yeah. then the one that the six hour marathon one that I did after the men's final was really just turning the mic over to everyone else because I didn't have thoughts on it. And I just wanted to give people an opportunity to talk out their feelings. And we had like a, a Nigerian journalist who's just loved tennis and I got to ask her like how did you become a big tennis fan what do you love about it and she's like talking about like you know what she's done she and her colleague to try and cover tennis more often in Nigeria and she hopes to be at a tournament and like get credentialed and I was like that's great we had a couple of um, great um, co correspondents out of Johannesburg one oh, who's cool. blind and uh, or, or at least vision impaired and so he was kind of talking about like what and asking like you know what is tennis going to do to kind of like um, move into the next 
phase of of bringing in new fans and things like that. And um, and so you had South Africa. So we had South Africa on the board. We had a lot of Europe. We had Israel. We had like um, India. Like um, one of the women who called in from India, who was a big Rafa fan, who said even when he was down two sets, she never stopped believing. And I was like, bless your heart, because you are the only person on the planet Earth that thought that. But <laughs> we she found was, her. She's the only yeah, one. <laughs> but I gave her the floor. She talked through her her feelings for like 15 minutes. And then afterwards on Twitter, she was like, that's the first time that I've ever articulated like out loud, like what I love about Rafa and like, you know, and got to share that. That's Thank great. you. And so that was what I loved about it way more than as much as I love talking to you and talking to Reem right. and talking to Barbini and Max and Pam and like whatever. Ultimately, like that was the most fulfilling one that I, that I hosted. And so that's going to be, I think a little bit more the format as I continue them and we'll do some on NCR as well and we can do them yeah. whenever. But like, and I think that, you know, having experimented them on my personal space, like we'll probably try to do some on Insider or WTA as well and bring in players, which would be mm. fun, um, you know, as a, as a different way to kind of uh, let players interact with fans and things like that. Uh, we'll see. But um, but yeah, that, that was for my personal spaces. That's what I was going to do is just kind of like kind of hold them more as an opportunity for fans to commune. Yeah. Rather than like Courtney has opinions, no one needs to freaking hear my opinions, guys. Like, and the ones you want to hear, I'll never say out loud. So, <laughs> th those are for the group chat. So yeah, so it was really fun, and it's a whole new tool, and it, I liked it better than using Twitch, um, which I thought was what I would try to do with this, like kind of a similar idea, and it just never really. Twitch is just too niche of a platform when it it's comes impressively to Twitter. Like the great thing about Twitter Spaces is it's impressively like low tech but actually sounds really good if people the, are fidelity, the audio fidelity great. was great the audio fidelity yeah. i thought was really really good so um so yeah we'll we'll try it again i was going to do one on, on on friday um which is tomorrow or what is today today is thursday or it just turned over friday here okay so yeah so i'll try to do one on friday um once i i finish work or something but uh but yeah it's good stuff well, I look forward to it. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, NCR can get a piece of this action. You are a, you are the Delilah. Of, I just of, worry of a little bit when like doing it like on like other accounts because I know at least with my accounts, it's like generally speaking, my followers so they know what the vibe is. I'm not doing it on my I, account. I'm not doing it on my account. I'm saying no. Don't you, do one on your account. You, my God, you or NCR would be fine. Well, if, if I like, if I was on my account and was you know not just picking strangers, I'd be fine. True. And even then you can check the bio and there's plenty of red flags. That's the thing. I up. do. I will say that like when I see a speaker that I'm about to unmute, I do click through on your profile and I do scroll a little bit just to make sure that it isn't like, I've definitely seen a few times where people have like tried to get on and I've scrolled and I'm like, did you just talk shit about me yesterday? Like, what are you doing? Like, which is fine. People have every right to do that. People do do that. Yeah. But I'm also going to be a little bit more wary. I may still unmute you. But I'm gonna. Be, I might be a little bit more wary of it and be very quick with my finger hovering over to remute you pretty quick because that's just not the vibe that I'm trying to to cultivate on on mine. You can go on somebody else's. <laughs> you can you can you can rip there. It's fine. <laughs> well, with that, um, let's rip away on an outro. Thank you, Courtney, and hopefully uh, talk to you soon again. Some yes, moment. absolutely. Rest up, man. You deserve it. You busted your butt. My butt is quite busted. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs> that was weird sorry sometimes people are crazy sometimes people are me but as long as you're you and as long as I'm me then that's all that we need to be 
I don't care if you're a boy who used to be a girl or a girl who used to be a boy. All I care about is you right now. Cause aren't we all just something a little bit in between? I love hearts, not parts.